Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Thank you all again for tuning in to this week's episode of Creepscast. It's going to be extra spooky and it's guaranteed to give you a good scare. Let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I saw my first demon on the bus today. It followed me home. Written by Marcus Starr. It was colder than the shady side of an iceberg. I shivered as the city bus lumbered its way toward me, sloshing and swaying along the snow-sodden street like a dinosaur in distress. I reveled in its warmth as soon as I stepped on. Immediately, something struck me as odd. A peculiar feeling swept over me, trickling down to the bottom of my boots. I wiped the fog from my glasses, and then spotted a vacant seat at the back of the bus. It was the only seat available. I bumped my way through the bulky, coated bodies, all the while feeling that something was dreadfully wrong. And then I saw it. The thing was gray or green, with heavy-set eyes dug deep into its football-shaped head. It was wearing a face mask. We all were. But I could still see its face, somehow. Its teeth were jagged, like the remains of a bowl of Tostitos. Lips like dental flaws, almost non-existent. And zero nose whatsoever. As far as I could tell, whatever this thing was, it wasn't human. I sat next to it. My stomach was tumbling like a dryer's final spin. My hands were shaking, and it wouldn't stop. I pulled up my phone and pretended to scroll through social media, but to be honest, I wasn't. I was looking around to see if anyone else could see this thing for what it truly was. It had been a long day at work. Being a nurse in 2022 is pretty exhausting. Maybe my mind was playing tricks on me. It must be, right? Except, I could feel the thing eyeballing me. Its slippery mind warming its way into mine, like an anonymous hacker. It made me feel gross all over. The thing was leaning forward, studying me. I wanted to scream out in rage and get away from it, but instead I sat quietly, hoping that it would leave me alone, whatever it was. And then it spoke to me. Cold enough for you? It asked. It sounded like it was chewing on razor blades. Its voice was devoid of any emotion or inflection. The words sounded forced, almost robotic. 
I was too terrified to respond, so I simply nodded. Meanwhile, my eyes darted across the busy bus, stopping at an old Italian lady who was glaring at me. Her face suggested alarm. Her eyes told me that she saw it too. This made me feel worse, but at least it reiterated what I already knew. I was sitting next to a demon. My ex-boyfriend would go on and on about these things. He says that they're everywhere. He calls them lizard people and says that they're running the world. I thought that he was full of crap. I mean, I still do, to be honest. That's one of the reasons that I broke up with him. Without realizing it, I was texting him. I mean, he was the only person that I could tell. Heck, the only person who would actually believe me. I had to shield my phone. The thing sitting next to me was trying to read it. I mean, I couldn't believe it. When it spoke again, I stifled my scream. So, you're a nurse, it asked, as if my scrubs didn't give this away. Yes, I said, staring out of the window, praying for my stop to arrive sooner rather than later, so I could get away from this monster. Unfortunately, the bus was crawling along King Street, hitting every stop along the way. I shifted in my seat. Even through my mask, I could smell the thing. It smelled like pork chops. When you accidentally leave them out all weekend, and the juices all turn bad and the flesh begins to rot... No wonder no one else sat next to it. I mean, P.U. I considered standing up and moving away, but the bus was rammed full of people, with more people getting on at every stop. It looked like I was going to have to tough it out. Only six more stops to go. The Italian woman found my eyes again, Intense energy was seething from her sharp, harrowing eyes. Her eyes went from me to the monster, back to me and back to the monster. The Italian woman started to speak to me. Her voice was muddled due to her mask, and she spoke only Italian, so I couldn't make out what she was trying to say, except for one word. Diablo. That sent chills down my spine. Meanwhile, the creature continued to study me with great interest, as though I was a zoo animal, or even worse, a science experiment. And then it touched me. The buzz hit a bump and everyone jilted. The thing jumped from its seat as did I, and it touched my leg when we landed. It felt slimy and gross, even through my clothes, 
And now I have a rash on my leg from where it had handled me. Just my luck. Five more stops to go. With immense effort, I forced that thing's hand off my leg. Pardon me, it said in a slithery voice. Oh, how I wished it wouldn't have spoken. Without meaning to, I turned and looked it straight into the eyes. I shuddered. Its eyes were big black holes, like eternal darkness. Except something in the darkness was turning over and over somehow, like spinning marbles of madness. I pulled my eyes away. It bared its teeth. It knows. It knows that I can see the thing for what it really is. Four more stops to go. Man, I wish this bus would just get a move on. You live around here? The thing asked. I refused to answer. I smiled and nodded politely and looked toward the Italian lady for support. To my chagrin, she was standing up and bouncing her way toward the exit. She did, however, glance over at me while the door groaned its way open. And to my surprise, she made the Ronnie James Deho devil horns while reciting a mantra. The creature jolted, as though being struck with a hammer. The Italian lady ambled off the bus, shaking her head and muttering to herself as she went. I watched her get smaller and smaller as the bus rolled away. Three more stops to go. Man, weirdos everywhere, the demon thing said to me, its voice raising every hair on my body. Oh, how I wished it would shut its mouth, its oval, toothy mouth. I was getting carsick. Two more stops. The bus lumbered languidly along the slippery road. By now, my heart was threatening to leap out of my chest. And meanwhile, the thing next to me just wouldn't shut up. So, you take the bus often. The more I tried to sound casual, the more I wanted to stick plugs in my ears. Worse, the thing was shimmering as though projecting a fake hologram over its true form. I wondered what it looked like to everyone else. Everyone, that is, except the Italian lady. I hated it. Oh, you know, was all that I could say. My voice sounded far away like a voice in a scary dream. One more stop. With my heart leaping from my chest and tears threatening to rain down on my cheeks, I pushed the request to stop button. Nothing happened. For a moment, I was consumed with panic. But then I realized that somebody else had beaten me to it. With incredible effort, I forced myself to stand up. And then I beelined it to the exit, pushing my way through the crowd.
and the bus pulled over and I got off. I breathed a sigh of relief the second that my boots hit the ground. That is until what happened next. The demon thing got off the bus as well. I shrieked. Instinct took over. I put my head down and started walking home, not bothering to look over my shoulder, seeing if it was following me. I already knew that it was. I could hear it, crunching along the snow-clad sidewalk. I walked. It was a bitter cold. The sidewalks were crusted in filthy slush and pieces of gnarly ice. Walking in this weather isn't easy, let me tell you, but I soldiered on. As I turned onto my street, I stole a quick glance over my shoulder. Sure enough, the creature was close behind me. For a moment, I froze dead in my tracks, and then I picked up the pace and hurried down to my duplex and clumsily opened the door with shaky movements. As I was shutting the door, I saw it skulking me from across the street, wrapped in its warm winter coat and hat. I had to look away. The thing was revolting. Once inside my home, I tore off my coat and mittens and went for my phone. My ex had texted back. He was more than intrigued. Apparently, he had been seeing these lizard people around town for more than a month. I called him and we spoke for several minutes. He said that he would stop by and have a look. That was over an hour ago. I haven't heard back from him, but the demon is still lurking outside of my home. It's being creepy. It'll pace up and die the sidewalk, and then stop directly in front of my house and just stare. Then it'll walk away, only to return ten minutes later and do the same thing again. It must be completely deranged because it is downright freezing outside. I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess I'll finish this report in the morning. If I'm still alive, that is. Oh, I wish my ex were here with me. At least he's checking up on it. I hope. At some point in the night, the creature fled back to whatever place it came from. And sleep came soon thereafter. I dreamed of monsters. When I awoke, my mind was quick to tell me how I had imagined that whole thing on the bus. The demon. No rational, level-headed, hard-working person like myself would accept this to be true. Obviously. It's time to get ready for work. Before venturing out into the frigid February morning, I filled my thermos with some piping hot coffee, as I always do. All the while, my mind wouldn't let go of that demon thing on the bus, the creature that had followed me home. I peeked out my window just in case. It was back. It was watching me. I ran to the washroom and regurgitated some toast and marmalade. It wasn't pretty, I'm not gonna lie. So, 
I'm putting this story out there in case something happens to me. I haven't heard back from my ex, which is weird. He was totally intrigued. What happened to him? I don't know. What I do know is this. A demon had followed me home and it's waiting for me. And there's no way that I'm walking out that door. No way. I'll call in sick today. And then what? I'll call an Uber tomorrow. And then what? I don't know. I'll leave you with this. If somebody tells you they saw something strange and unusual, listen to them. Because up until yesterday, I thought such things were hogwash. Now I do not. When it's quiet, I can hear it whispering to me through the walls directly into the attics of my mind. It's getting louder. The words sound like madness. Maybe staying home is a bad idea. I honestly don't know what to do. If you don't hear back from me, send help. And remember, trust your eyes. There are monsters among us. We are not alone. You should always follow the rules when staying in a Dublin hotel. Written by Sugar Sewed. This happened to me a few years ago, and this is probably the first time that I've had the courage to write it down. I cannot name the hotel involved or there will be legal issues. I worked for a company which was based in Cavan, which is a county in Ireland. Our boss for some reason decided that he would surprise us all by organizing a Christmas party right in downtown Dublin City. We were all ecstatic about this, as for some reason this was very unlike him to do. He would usually be the type of person who would count how many tea bags that his employees would be using every day. You know, that type. We ended up going to a fancy steak restaurant, and then went on a pub crawl after that. After way too many pines, we stumbled back to the hotel in the early hours of the morning. We hammered on the door until one of the hotel staff members had let us in. We were about to head upstairs when another member of the staff marched over to us. He looked at us with a serious look on his face and told us not to leave our rooms between 3.15am and 3.30. I remember laughing directly in his face as we stumbled our way upstairs. Soon enough, I got back into my room and I turned on the television. At that point too, we weren't done so I began drinking a few of the bottles that I'd bought earlier before the night had started. I was enjoying them still, but they were a bit warm, as they had been in my pockets for nearly an hour now. I then remember seeing an ice machine just down the hallway, so I thought why not? Might as well cool these drinks down a little bit. I glanced at my watch, 
and I saw that it was 3.23 a.m. And I smiled, thinking of that staff member's stupid rule. I mean, why would that even be a thing? It was so obscure. Anyways, I grabbed my key and made my way out the door and to get some ice. I was singing all the way to myself and I didn't care if I was disturbing any of the other guests. As you could imagine, I was pretty bad by this point. I made it to the ice machine and I quickly filled a glass with ice. After that, I began making my way back to my room. But my eyes, they kept being drawn to these strange pictures on the wall. They were of random families, all smiling away at the camera. I snorted at the thought that they all probably had started arguing with each other the second that the photo had been taken. I pushed open my door to my room and I felt my blood run cold as I looked at the spectacle that was unfolding inside. There was a man dangling from the ceiling by dozens of barbed wire chains that were holding him up in place. There was red liquid dripping off of him in numerous places as the wire had cut into him pretty deeply. There was a woman and two children standing beneath him and I almost threw up as the woman used a sharp blade to cut two thin strips off the man. She then nonchalantly threw them in the air, and the children snatched them up into their mouths. I took two slow steps backwards, as I finally saw the children's faces for the first time. Their eye sockets, they were filled with insects and... Their mouths were covered with rows of razor-sharp teeth. I watched as the food that they were eating, it was sliced and diced into tiny pieces by their razor-sharp teeth. The woman, who I assume had to be their mother, may have been beautiful at one time, but now had the look of pure malice on her face. Her eyes were deeply sunken, and her hair looked like it hadn't been washed in at least a decade's time. Her hands were terribly misshapen, and they now looked more like claws than actual hands. I locked eyes with the man, and I was horrified to discover that he was still alive. His eyes seemed to be pleading with me to help him in some way. I didn't know what to do, though. The woman reached out with her claw-like hands and tore one of his eyes out. She then placed them into her mouth, and I could hear that terrible popping noise as she crushed them slowly with her teeth. The man began to scream out in agony, and then she ended him with her claws. She stepped underneath and seemed to be showering in what was left of the man as it now spurted outwards. Within moments, she was completely saturated by it. 
I stood there froze, not knowing what to do. But eventually, I somehow snapped out of it. I began to slowly back up, in the hopes of somehow escaping before they spotted me. I heard a noise from behind me and realized that I had collided with the door. The woman's steely glare locked onto me, and she let out an awful, ear-splitting scream. Her two children, they lunged at me, and I barely had time to get out of the door. I slammed the door shut in their faces, and heard repeated thuds from the other side as they tried to get at me. I started to run down the hallway, trying to find the elevator and get out of here, and hopefully find some help. But my eyes were once again drawn to the pictures that were on the walls. Instead of the families from before, they now showed scenes that reminded me of these Saw films. I stopped in shock as I recognized the faces in one of those pictures. It was of my family when we were all much younger. It showed me sitting on a couch with my family also all around me, but everybody was missing their head. They all had a candle burning inside of their mouth, and it made it look like they were all smiling at me, like some sort of demented jack-o'-lantern. I smacked myself across the face to ensure that this wasn't a dream, and then I began moving once again. At this point, it felt like an eternity since I had left the room, and I was confused as to why I hadn't made it to the elevator yet. It had to have been less than even 30 seconds walk from my room earlier, but I had been walking for around 5 minutes at least now. I decided to try another room to see if there was anyone up here that could possibly help me. I picked a room at random, and I crossed my fingers in the hopes that there was salvation inside. I knocked on the door. I was disappointed when there was no reply. I was about to try the next door when I felt the door open slightly. There was nothing that I could see inside, so I pushed the door in further. The room seemed completely black inside, and the lights from the hallway didn't penetrate the darkness. I was turning to leave when I saw something move out of the corner of my eye in that pitch black room. I thought that it might have just been a figment of my imagination until I saw it move again. There appeared to be something crawling along the floor. I moved forward to get a better look at what was lurking inside. I let out a scream as I saw a giant black spider skitter across the floor. It was only at this moment that I realized that what I had mistook for darkness was thousands of spiders instead. 
they all began to crawl towards me, and I quickly slammed the door before they could overwhelm me. Some of them began to crawl underneath the door, and I tried to crush them with my feet. Their bodies began to excrete a yellowish liquid that began to burn through these soles of my shoe, so I had to rip them off before the liquid could reach my feet. The sounds of running feet began in the distance, and I looked around to find out where it was emanating from. Both ends of the hallway looked clear, but the footsteps sounded like they were nearly on top of me. I was surrounded. I spotted movement in one of the pictures on the wall, and I watched a younger version of myself go running through the picture carrying a blade. He then appeared in the next picture over, and then carried on along all the pictures on the hallway. I was waiting for him to reappear when I felt an agonizing pain in my shoulder. I spun around again to see the younger version of myself reaching out of the nearest picture with the blade. I had such a menacing look at my face that it didn't even look like it was me. I don't think it was me. Here, me tried to swing it at me, but I jumped back. He gave me the most sadistic look that I had ever seen before running away once again. I heard the footsteps appear behind me, and I barely had time to react as he used another picture to try and get the jump on me. He had a look of disappointment on his face for a moment as he failed at getting me this time, and then he waved at me before disappearing once again. I panicked. I didn't understand what was happening. I began moving up the center of the corridor, and I was keeping an eye out on both sides of me in case he decided to try and get me once again. My legs were barely moving at this time due to total exhaustion. I was moving along step by step out of pure force of will. I stopped for a few seconds to get my breath back and to give myself time to think of an escape plan. After five minutes of not coming up with anything, I just decided to continue going forward. I tried to start walking, and I was scared when I couldn't move them. I looked down to see that my feet had begun sinking into the floor while I had been standing still. It was like I was stuck in quicksand. I twisted and struggled to move them, but my efforts were in vain as they were firmly stuck. I started to panic as I continued to sink through the wooden floor. The more that I struggled, the farther that I fell. I felt my knees pop as they made their way through the floor. I thought of all those stupid old movies that had a quicksand and I let out a giggle that sounded manic in my ears. My waist had just disappeared when I heard noises from somewhere out in front of me. 
A very confused older couple stood there staring at me as they had just stepped out of the elevator that had only been a few steps away. I screamed at them to help and they ran forward and grabbed my arms and began to pull me up. I felt myself being dragged forward and I let out a triumphant cheer when they managed to free me. But my happiness lasted only mere seconds as the woman let out a scream before fainting. I started to weep as they had only managed to free the top half of my body while the bottom half had totally disappeared. I later learned that my legs had been found running around at the floor below. It had taken the staff almost an hour to catch them as they wouldn't let anyone near them. A number of the staff had ended up with injuries as my legs had lashed out at them while they were trying to subdue them. No one could explain what happened to me that night and I wonder if anyone will ever believe my dark tale. If you read this, then please heed my warning and obey the hotel staff as maybe their rules are there for a reason. I climbed up the stairs in the woods. I can't get back down. Written by Drekanox. I joined as a park ranger five months before the events of this story happened. I would encounter the stairs occasionally, but it was random when they would appear. Once, I went a month without seeing them, and then I would run into three of them in three days consecutively. Hold on, I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. Most of you probably don't even get what I'm even talking about. In the national park where I work at, occasionally out in the wilderness, you'll find staircases which seem to sprout out of nowhere. Just staircases out in the open. They don't seem to lead anywhere, and they go away just as quickly as they appear. Now... I'm pretty sure this would be a bigger news story than it is, but as it is, the higher-ups want to keep a wrap on them. I don't know if perhaps they know more than I do about them, but whatever it actually is, the other rangers didn't seem to care for them much either. Whenever I would ask or inquire about them, most of them would not respond and just straight up ignore me and start talking about the weather or some other kind of small talk. Some of them would glare at me as if I had just committed an unforgivable sin and they would tell me never to mention them again. A few of the others would just shrug and get on with whatever it was that we were supposed to be doing. I did eventually find someone, though. I'll call this someone Mark. He was a bit more open to talking about the stairs than any of the others. Listen, I know that you're new here, 
and most people just get the hint that no one is supposed to talk about the stairs, but yeah, for some reason they just sort of pop up out of nowhere. He paused, and he looked at me quizzically. Have you ever come across one which is upside down? I paused and shook my head. I've seen one of them like that, and some of the others have too. I have no clue what it means though. The only thing that you need to know is that you are never to ever and listen to me ever go on them. Do that and the least you'll be getting is fired. He then trailed off, not detailing the things that could happen which would be worse than getting fired. And honestly, for a time, for some reason, I just sort of accepted that. We weren't supposed to be going on the stairs. It seemed simple enough to me at the time. So much so that I even began to ignore it like many of the other rangers. That was until one day we had gotten an alert that a kid had disappeared somewhere in the woods of our park. I was sent out as part of the search party, and as I began combing the area where the kid was last seen, I saw it. A set of stairs, lined with a yellow carpet. Another one of the rangers, I'll call her Stacy, had found me standing there just staring at it. Stacy was a part of the crowd like many others, which would just ignore the stairs as much as possible. But her face became pale when she saw them. She looked at me and shook her head. We'll keep searching, but, well, we need to get ready to tell the folks the bad news. She laughed shortly after, and I quickly pieced together what she thought had happened. The kid must have grown curious at seeing the staircase in the woods, and like many others probably would in the same situation, he had went up the stairs, and after that, well, I'm not sure. Whatever happened when you went up them happened, meaning she had already written off the kid as good as gone. For me, though, I wasn't one to give up that easily. Unfortunately, for me, it's just how I am. I never seem to just be able to put things down. Plus, I was new here and somehow felt that I could pull something amazing off, maybe gain a little bit more credibility around the other rangers. Oh, what an idiot I was. I won't lie though, I did feel odd while going up those stairs. I spent a good minute just staring at them initially, probably more than a minute. Unsure if I should go up or not. In the end though, I figured that if I didn't make my move sooner rather than later, someone else would find me, and I did not want to be caught doing it. I slowly counted the steps out on my hands as I went up them one by one. Thirteen in total, 
Weird. Thirteen, an odd number. And as I put my foot on the topmost stop, my body shook. Have you ever had that false falling sensation when you're about to fall asleep? When you're trying to fall asleep, but it's really your body just trying to do a final check to see if everything's a-okay or something, I believe. Well, that's what I felt. As if when my foot descended to meet the topmost step, the ground beneath me gave way, but immediately popped back into existence. And when that was done, I was no longer at the top of the staircase. I was at the bottom again, and I was no longer in the woods. I was in someone's house, and the stairs were still completely out of place. They led up right into a wall. I looked around. The carpet here didn't even match that of the staircase. It was a crimson red color. I was in a hallway, and I could hear some voices coming from another room. Now I know it all sounds stupid, but the first thing that came to mind was that I was wearing shoes. Shoes which had been outside in the woods on a carpet. If it was my mom, she would be screaming bloody murder at me. What would the owner or the owners of this house think? Slowly, I crept up towards the door, dreading what was coming up. As it was, I couldn't exactly go back down into the woods, but maybe I could keep going up. But would that even lead me back home, or somewhere else entirely? As it was, even though this was a weird situation, I was still more confident with staying here where I was, because at the very least, this place was safe. Or at least it seemed like it was. And as they say, better the devil you know. I went into the room, preparing an apologetic face. The room looked fairly normal at first glance. There were four people sitting at a table, two adults and two children. They looked like they were eating dinner based on how dark it was outside of the windows. The television was on, and there was some sort of news program on, which they all must have been watching, before they noticed me and turned their heads. And that's what was off about them. Their heads. Each of them had their heads on backwards. Even the newscaster on television had his head on backwards, and it was looking out with his chair turned around the other way. Otherwise, they were just like you and I, and really thinking about it too. It seems almost comical, though it didn't seem funny at the time. The four of them screamed, and one of them lunged for a knife. I didn't want to stick around any longer, and I wound back up on the staircase. Instinctively, 
I thought that if I went back up them, I would once again end up somewhere else. It was either that or go outside the door. But I had a strange feeling that when I went out into the world, given what I saw from just the news broadcast, I would find a world filled with people with their heads on backwards. As my feet touched the top of the stairs, I once again felt the weird falling sensation as I found myself back out in the woods. I sighed in relief now. Granted, I hadn't found the kid that I was looking for in the first place, but I was safe from whatever those creatures were. However, there was definitely something off here. I realized that quickly enough when I had glanced up. There was nothing off initially, until I saw that there was something accompanying the sun overhead. It was another sun, which had descended towards the horizon. Two suns in the sky. I definitely wasn't back in Kansas. Taking a deep breath, I went up the stairs again, and again, and again. I saw many things. Worlds which were a lot like our own, but subtly different. People having the wrong number of appendages. People who had only one eye, or three. Sometimes I would even end up at some different part of time. I saw dinosaurs roam across the plain before I got my common sense together and left pronto. Now, I have my own theory on what these stairs are now. They're gateways between different universes. I can only think that the fabled inverted ones that Mark once mentioned somehow led back, but I haven't been able to find one. I've been going up these same set of stairs, hoping to end up back home. Granted, I finally got a break. Well, something of a break. I found him. The kid that I was looking for. The little guy started screaming the moment that I'd approached him. Understandable, I guess, but I managed to introduce myself and calm him down just a little bit. We had ended up in someone's house, though thankfully the homeowner wasn't there. The only thing that I could think to do at that point was call for help, but my phone wasn't getting a signal. And so, I went on here and was hoping some of you could help us get back home. I've been scouring the internet, and it does seem like we've managed to loop back around finally given that I can see the national park where I work at is listed there on the internet. I saw a bunch of familiar sights and news items as well too. Ah, it's good to be back home. Overall, we're both doing fine for now, though we are kind of getting hungry. And oh yeah, there is one more odd thing here now that I think about it. It's this keyboard. I don't know why, but it's just, it isn't made for someone like me. 
I think the owner of this house has some sort of accident and had lost a finger on both of their hands. They must have had this keyboard custom built for themselves later on. Because how is anyone with a full set of seven fingers supposed to use this thing? Anyway, do please send help soon. I read a redacted agent's classified file. Here's what it said. Written by Mr. Mills 45. The following is a highly classified transcripted document. Any agency personnel below level 5 clearance caught with this file in their possession, without explicit and signed permission from authorized personnel, will be terminated without hesitation. The briefing room was more full than usual. All sorts of agents armed to the teeth, just like me with advanced rifles, body armor, grenades, and sidearms. But I had a hunch as to why. However, while you will have the assistance of Subject 16A on this particular operation, that doesn't make it any less dangerous. But that should be something you're all used to at this point. Any questions? I raised my hand, instantly regretting it as Ted looked my way. He was, shall I say, not the kind of guy you wanted to upset. And it wasn't due to his physical prowess necessarily, but he was cold, verbally and emotionally ruthless, which is probably why they made him the director of operations. This organization is quite picky about these sociopaths that it puts in charge. Yes, Agent Parker. He inquires, that dead, void-of-life stare that he practically trademarked locked right onto me. We'll be leading this operation, I asked, hiding my deep-rooted disdain for the man. Agent Ivory will be in charge, although she will still be answering to me. We don't actually know what the particular threat is yet, but a whole factory's worth of men doesn't get found dead on your average day. Something got in there. Cops and the feds are too scared to investigate it themselves, so it's up to us to wipe out whatever the heck this thing is. He went on, pausing for a second to take in any reaction from us agents. No, oh, but don't worry. I have special plans for you since it seems like you need a little extra attention today. Ted teased, mocking me with an overly condescending tone. A little backstory in case you're lost. A week ago, a factory belonging to the company known as Northwell Industries was operating like any other day. Materials were being shipped and manufactured. Other company representatives were coming in to discuss asset orders while the floor workers worked until their last drop of sweat evaporated for a solid paycheck. Same old, same old. Regardless, the factory had suddenly and inexplicably gone quiet. The corporate had heard no communications from supervisors or lower-level management, which was apparently extremely unusual. So, they sent a couple of executives to check it out and see what all the commotion, or rather, lack thereof, was about. And when they got there, well, let's just say they weren't expecting to find a bloodbath. Bodies contorted and bent in ways that they shouldn't have. Flesh, a muscle tissue, and organs a torn, bitten, and ripped to shreds. Some men were even missing entire limbs. 
Let's just say they got out of there quickly without doing too much digging. Although I was sure that something would have chased them out anyway. This is what the agency told us anyway. I hadn't seen it to myself up to this point or anything besides printed word and verbal sources. No pictures, videos, or anything of the sort. And of course, when the company contacted traditional law enforcement, they then passed it on to us. It was a problem above most of their pay grades anyway. Monra-piercing rounds, ammo bags, and extra body armor as well as ecto-magnets will be provided in the event you end up encountering more spiritual opponents. Ted continued, his eyes piercing through those dark aviators. But something about his tone and delivery felt off. I'm not going to say that he knew something that we didn't, because that's quite literally his job. But I definitely feel like we weren't getting the entire truth here. Not quite. But we finished the briefing. I got something to eat and we prepped ourselves. And it wasn't long before we were ready to head out. So the technical six-man team finished loading up and headed out to the transport truck. All in all, I was somewhat morbidly excited. One, because there hadn't been very many incidents lately and because of that, things had become a little slow around Site 12. And two, because I was going to be finally getting to go on an operation with Subject 16A. I hadn't met him, not up to this point. I had only read his case file and had spoken to Ted and Dr. West about him. Apparently, he was really something out in the field, so I was excited to see if he had lived up to the legend. Although Ted was seemingly not nearly as geeked over him as West was. Me and the four other agents boarded the truck, waiting for his 16A to arrive before we headed off. Now it looks like the freaks tagging along again. One announces cruelly before following up with a chuckle. And part of me was convinced his insult did not go unheard. Because just as he had finished his rather self-contained show of enjoyment at his own joke, 16A himself turned the corner. He stood tall, and I mean freakishly tall, around eight feet at least. He was rather thin though with smooth, midnight blue skin running along what I guess I could call the skeleton. But despite his inherent smoothness, his skin wasn't without scars. His many battles with cryptips over the past near two decades had definitely shown themselves. He was also hairless from head to toe, bipedal in his stance. I looked up at his face, two large, glowing light bulb shaped eyes staring right back at me. But those didn't make me nearly as uncomfortable as those long, slightly red, stained claws. His teeth appeared and just as deadly too. And although I hadn't seen him in action yet, he definitely looked like a killing machine. He stepped past all of us and headed to the furthest corner of the truck. Despite his massive size and terrifying appearance, he didn't appear to have much pride in his stature, not around us anyway, but I could tell that he still wasn't thrilled about what the agents had said about him. Regardless, we set off and it didn't take us very long to make it to the location. Despite its great separation from nearly any other man-made structure, not that it's weird for a factory to be somewhat isolated. I feel like there's a bit more to this than what Ted had told us. I spoke up, attempting to break the long-maintained silence on the way. 
It always is. Did you forget who we work for? A female agent replied. She seemed uninterested in conversation. All my so-called fellow agents did. So I turned to an unlikely subject for discussion. A discussion that would only last for mere moments before the doors to the trailer opened up. And what about you, Big Blue? You thinking something's up? I inquired, shifting my neck to see his head perk up at the question. He was standing there at the end of the truck, so quiet and almost unnoticeable, which was odd for someone his size, but he replied nonetheless. His voice, a low yet booming one, one that put the vast majority of even the most masculine human men to shame. Innocent humans are dead. Something killed them. It appears simple to me. We killed the monster that did it. He declared proudly, a sudden sharp contrast in his tone and mannerisms. That lack of confidence from earlier seemingly fading. The doors to the trailer were then opened by the driver. All of us quickly checked our gear, made sure that our rifles were loaded and headed off. Let 16A lead the way. He definitely isn't the brightest, but that nose of his is more useful than you could ever imagine. Ted ordered us all over our earpieces. When I stepped out, I was finally greeted by the sight of the large abandoned and eerie factory. It had a ghostly vibe to it, which made sense given the context. But this was a different. I was confident in saying that I could almost feel the evil radiating off of it. It had an old, beginning of the Industrial Revolution feel. A large rectangular shape made of brick with a curved roof at the top, with multiple large chimneys on the roof of the main structure. The beaten up dearth path leading to it had bits of dried blood scattered on it here and there. Enough to be noticed, but not enough to back up the so-called bloodbath that Ted had described during the briefing. 16A stepped forward in front of the rest of us, sniffing the air and attempting to get a reading on what may or may not have been lurking inside the building, both of which sounded like unsettling prospects. He waits for a few seconds, seemingly processing what it is that he had sensed, after which he turns around, looking down at all of us to speak. There's something here. Its scent is unfamiliar, but I know that we're not alone. Move with caution. I could tell that Agent Ivory was a bit annoyed with 16A seemingly calling out the shots. But what was she going to do? Run her mouth to the eight-foot-tall cryptid a slain beast. Not that I really think he'd retaliate violently. Not towards us, anyway. All of us simultaneously shoot each other curious glances. Some appearing more worried than others, but nonetheless... 16A dropped down onto all fours, crawling forward towards the building. We raise our weapons as we follow him, preparing for an unpleasant encounter with whatever it was that was residing within the building. 16A reaches the structure, quickly latching on and beginning to scale the side of the building like a colossal spider. He quickly closed the distance between the ground and ceiling height one to one mere seconds looking inside and listening in for any movement. Us agents on the ground made it to the main door, turning on our under-barrel flashlights and peeking inside the beginning of the interior. And at first, there was nothing. 
despite the blood on the path earlier and the reports from the police. I didn't spot anything that really constituted the definition of a complete and utter slaughter scene like it was made out to be. And although there were bits of blood here and there, it wasn't enough to even say or determine if anything or anyone was anything beyond wounded. I jumped a bit as I heard as 16A shattered the glass from the window above and proceeded to crawl inside, scaling his way along the roof as we marched forward. I radioed back to Ted as to what had transpired thus far. This is Agent Parker. We haven't found the target as of yet, still on the lookout. Subject is 16A has entered the location and we aren't far behind him. There was a few seconds of silence as the team waited for Ted's response. All of us hesitated to keep going without any direct orders. Just keep on pressing forward. Don't radio me again unless it's absolutely necessary. I don't need an insignificant status update every five seconds. So much for being engaged with the team. We entered into what I assumed was the main area of the factory. Not really sure what the proper term was. I had worked decently cushiony jobs before. I was more or less forced into this one. I mean, the pay is nice, but it's not like I wouldn't like a salary raise when I'm nearly getting killed on at almost a monthly basis. The darkness made it a bit more difficult to navigate inside, but we moved forward regardless. All sorts of conveyor belts, hooks, and assembly line-esque contraptions surrounding us. I'm not sure why they hadn't given us night vision goggles this time around. However, from what I was told by Dr. West... 16A possessed efficient night vision naturally, or whatever you would call it. So moving through this was not even an inconvenience for him. And speaking of which, I could hear him scurrying around in the ceiling far above us, continuing his own hunt for the supposed threat. But all of us stopped dead in our tracks and turned our heads at a sudden violent and earth-shattering thud and snap. A snap that resembled that of bones being horrendously broken. 16A even quit what he was doing and sat still on the ceiling. Although with his advanced hearing, I could imagine that it was almost painful for him. I and the other agents pointed our underbarrel flashlights forward, spotting what appeared to be the mangled body of a human man laying on the cement ground between some equipment stands. His arms and legs were bent in sickening ways. We tried to look around for where it actually came from or what might have dropped it per se, but there was not a source in sight. Make sure to watch my sex. I told the others as I crept forward slowly, my fingers inches away from the trigger. Now I'll admit that I was a bit nervous, despite all my training and all the things that I had seen. There was something off about this particular operation, and it wasn't just from the potential threat. I moved in on the body, noticing a disturbing lack of proper pigmentation and smoothness in the skin. It was like the man had been drained of all of his fluids as if he were an empty tube of gogurt. This is Agent Parker. We've discovered a body severely damaged. The target is still yet to be located. I radioed back to command. I can see that. Ted replies, almost uninterested. I heard the sound of a 16A intensely sniffing out the air from above us, like he had finally detected something out there. 
I looked up, seeing him with a rigid stare forward into the darkness of the building. It's here, he announced in a half whisper, only putting me further on edge. And as if on cue, the loud, ear-shattering screech of whatever the creature was rang throughout the building. All of us immediately gritting our teeth from the high-pitched pain that had been sent up our ear canals. We looked forward. I caught somewhat of a glimpse of the thing with my flashlight. A sort of avian creature is the best I could do to describe it. A large, scaly yellow mucus-colored wing flying right past my line of sight. It attacked at 16A, violently knocking right off the ceiling after catching him off guard with a fast and vicious blow. The agents and I that were directly above him all backed up as fast as we could, not wanting to be crushed by its accelerated mass. He slammed to clean through a conveyor belt just before hitting the floor, the metallic structure snapping clean in half due to his impact. We pointed our weapons up at the ceiling and began to fire off as many rounds as we could to take down the still mostly unseen entity. It screeched yet again, although this time it was much louder and even more mind-numbing. I pointed my flashlight and caught a better glimpse of the thing flying downward right at 16A. It resembled what I could only explain to be a mutated pterodactyl. Its skin a light almost a magma orange, complete with sickening cracks and patches as well. Its beak was freakishly long and appeared chillingly sharp, sharp enough to pierce the flesh with ease. And I wasn't sure if I can actually make out any eyes in this thing, but it had talons though, long piercing ones that resembled small swords in their scale. They were even a bit shiny. But 16A was prepared for this attack. He quickly recovered from his admittedly harmless fall that he had taken just seconds ago, standing back up and waiting patiently for the creature to get in range. Once it does, 16A reaches out and quickly slashes the creature across its wing with a claw causing it to release its signature screech yet again, this time out of sheer agony though. It quickly flies back into darkness, seemingly preparing to strike again. 16A's claw was covered in a strangely and sickly green-colored substance that I'm sure was the creature's blood anyway. The heck is that thing? Another agent bellows before firing a few rounds off in the direction of the creature. The creature, despite being mortally wounded, did not give up its attack specifically for 16A. He flew up into the darkness and dove back down, attempting to grab 16A with its long talons. But 16A simply reaches up and grabs the creature by the throat, and violently slams it down right through a conveyor belt. The creature wails as 16A follows up by grabbing it once again, this time directly by the beak with one claw and the back of the head with the other. We all watch in utter and rather morbid amazement as 16A pulls with little effort and tears the creature's beak right from its body, chunks and bits of flesh coming off with it. But it was what he did next that was beyond brutal. He lifts the creature up, still barely alive while in the grip of his claw, and to put an end to the beast's suffering, 16A takes the dislodged beak and rams it into the creature's head, presumably through the brain, so it can meet an instantaneous but much less agonizing death. 
16A then tosses the creature to the side, as if it were nothing more than a child's plaything. A couple of the agents moved forward in order to get some samples from the creature and to inspect the body while the rest of us in 16A turned and made our way down to the left side of the factory. While walking, I absentmindedly shined my flashlight on the wall to my left, and in most circumstances, I wouldn't have hesitated like I did. In blood, the phrase, they lied, was written. The lead is still dripping down the material. It wasn't the most intense thing that I had ever seen, but it was enough to let my imagination run wild as to how it came to be. 16A simply ignored the message and climbed the wall to begin scaling it and to crawl across the ceiling as I marched on with the remainder of the team. Now pointing my flashlight forward and spotting what appeared to be a small collection of wires and metallic bulges running along some sort of support beam. It had a bit of smoke coming from these sides of the air vent like slits but only amount that was just enough to be noticed in the beam of the flashlight. I came to the conclusion that it had to be a generator of some sort. But if that was the case, why was nothing in here working properly? Object of interest up ahead. Stay alert. I announced to the rest of the team. But just before I could take even one step towards the generator, I picked up the sound of a blood-curdling shriek of something that sounded extremely similar to the creature that 16A had fought and killed earlier on. It wasn't alone. But instead of trying to fight these things in what was mostly the dark with the exception of our flashlights, I made a mad dash for the generator as gunfire began to ring out. On me! One of my fellow agents called out in a distressed cry before firing his rifle into the darkness above. The number of intense shrieks increased as I heard the rapid flapping of wings. I didn't know exactly how many of these things there were but it was for sure a small group at the bare minimum, and that's being generous to us. The gunfire continued as the shrieks and screeches increased in intensity. I had turned around for a brief second to my journey over to the generator and fired off a couple of shots into the airspace above my fellow agents, one of them being nearly snatched up by the flying cryptids. 16A leaped up from all fours and grabbed one of the beasts on his way, slamming it headfirst into the ceiling and destroying a pipe running along it. The loud metallic thud being practically nothing more than just a whisper with all the brain-melting chaos unfolding around me. It had been clear that in this fight, we had been winning, but not without a bit of bloodshed thrown our way. One agent had been caught off guard by a flyer. It dashed at him in the air and sank the tips of his talons right into the agent's eyes before any of us could get a shot off on it. His visor was useless in protecting him against the attack. He let out a truly chilling, distressed cry before falling to the floor, red running down his face as he groaned for mercy. The creature flew off into the darkness with a following screech before, being quickly snatched up and having his right wing torn from his body by his 16A. He's no use anymore. Ted radioed in. Sir, I... I tried to interrupt, fighting the urge to call him something that would probably get me thrown in the hall. That's an order, and unless you'd like to join him in his fate, you'll obey it. He fired back with a no-nonsense growl. This was not uncommon, not in this organization. 
Once you're of no use, you go six feet under. It was something that I had seen happen a few times. But now, now I actually had to be the one to pull the trigger. As the dust began to settle and the last of this particular batch of the creatures were being taken down, I raised my rifle, lining my eye up with the scope and pointed it right at my fellow agent's skull. My crosshair lined up perfectly with his forehead. But before I could even guide my finger to the trigger, a bang erupted from behind the man. A long stretch of red being projected out from where his forehead once was. And it appeared as someone had already done the job for me. Agent Ivory. And it looked like she almost enjoyed it too. A smug smile spread across her face. Despite everything that I had seen over the years, that was the most stomach churning. But I knew that I would be allowed no time to dwell on it. So I continued on with the mission. I turned around and finished my mad dash to the generator, leaning down and seeing what I could do to get the dang thing working. From what I could tell after lifting up a certain hatch near the top, it had plenty of oil inside. I shined my rifle's flashlight to see if I could chip away at the inner workings. And although I was no expert, I had worked with oil generators a bit in the past. It was actually a part of our training, funny enough. But due to what I had heard were budget issues, it wasn't nearly as long of a course as it used to be. Plus, most of it was dumbed down nowadays too. I toyed around some more, connecting a couple of wires and turning what I thought was a knob before the generator began making a strange, almost humming-like noise. It rattled a bit as well, going side to side in mere inches of distance. At first, I thought that I had gone ahead and broken the thing. I stepped back and clutched my rifle, waiting for what would happen next. But soon enough, after a loud metallic crunch, the lights in the factory suddenly came on. And as they did, I looked around, seeing nothing but red as splattered walls and the mangled and shot up bodies of the flyers. Their wings, beaks, talons all laying around like pieces to a board game. And yet I didn't find a single of the corpse of the factory workers, besides the one that we had first discovered when walking in. But all of that was to be expected. What wasn't, however, was what appeared to be a large, rectangular void in the wall behind the generator. It looked like a typical doorway, just without the door, and it had some sort of flickering light coming from deep within the room at a strange angle it led to. The heck? One of the agents blurted. Agent Parker, I'm talking to just you now. Came Teddo from my earpiece. Go down in that room, there's a black binder with some highly classified data inside. Under no circumstances are you to open it or view any of the contents inside. Do you understand? If you do, I'll have you terminated on the spot. Wait, Data, I thought we were just here for a simple extermination mission. Why do we have Data in a random factory? It's not your job to ask questions. It's your job to follow the orders given to you. Go get the binder. Although I'll have someone more competent do it for you. If you want that promotion so bad, then you're going to need to learn to perform your basic duties. He said in a berating tone. All in all, I obeyed, telling the other agents to stand back and scout the rest of the factory while I went in to retrieve this so-called data. Nearly everything you could think of went through my head, including thoughts of the agency being involved in some sort of cover-up or conspiracy. 
What were the higher-ups so worried about us finding out? After all the shady stuff that we had done, this is where they had to draw that line, huh? Anyway, once I passed the initial outline of the doorframe, I realized that it was actually a staircase that led downstairs into what seemed to be a basement. That same light continuing to flicker strangely. It was immediately cold and dreary when I stepped past the frame, like something out of a horror film. But most of this job was, if I was being brutally honest, the concrete stairs felt unstable with every step. I almost felt like it would take one wrong move before I ended up falling into the center of the earth right to hell itself. Finally, I made it to the bottom, the source of the flickering light being a couple of old light bulbs that were strung up on the ceiling, giving this lifeless cement basement room an even more eerie feeling. The expanse itself was no bigger than the basement of your average American home, but this definitely wasn't all there was to it. There were doors on the far left wall leading to what I presumed were other areas. Towards the right corner of this particular room was what looked to be an old rickety table, and atop it was what looked to be the black binder that Ted was telling me about. I pressed forward, keeping my eyes peeled and my ears open for any signs of trouble, my hands firmly on my rifle as I cautiously took my steps. Once making it to the table, however, and staring at the binder, I couldn't help but let my mind race yet again. And it did plenty, even as Ted came yelling over my radio earpiece. What are you doing? Pick the thing up and... And that's when I grabbed my earpiece and threw it across the room like it was nothing more than an action figure. I then proceeded to follow that up by taking off my visor and helmet not allowing Ted to have visual or auditory comprehension of what I was doing. I reached down and picked up the binder, which, despite its circumstances and conditions, wasn't very dusty, meaning that it was handled recently. And as much as I knew I was screwed from this point on, I knew that it couldn't get any worse. I had already made the worst choice that I could have made. I opened it up, the first page already making my heart sink as my jaw dropped to the floor. It was some sort of examination report for something classified as Subject 13A, although that something quickly became obvious as it was the classification for the flying creatures, confirmed by a literal picture and labeled diagram of its body structure on the very next page. The document was lengthy and a bit difficult to make out with such a small text, but I knew that this was ours. I mean, it had to be but why here of all places? Was anything they told us in the briefing true at all? I looked further down the document before seeing a line with a signature written on it. A signature that belonged to someone with a lot of authority at our particular site. Nearly as much as Ted. The Ice Queen herself. Dr. Athena L. West. And so I turned, darted over to one of the doors on the left wall and swung it open as quietly as I could. And not because I was afraid of the other agents hearing it. No, they wouldn't be able to pick that up. But 16A surely would. On the other side of the door was a maze of long stretches of hallway and corridors, bathed in an eerie orange lighting, some of which it looked like they went on for nearly a mile or more. There was definitely more to this place than I thought was even possible. But this would be my only chance of escaping. 
I then went around the room, awkwardly rubbing up against as many walls and objects as I could in order to get my scent on them. Because when they came looking for me, I just knew that they would use 16A to sniff me out. And if I could confuse him for as long as possible, then it would buy me some time and a chance to hide and then get out of here once they searched the area. I dropped my main rifle but kept my sidearm with me, otherwise it would have been far too much to carry. Afterwards, I began carefully clutching the binder in my hands and then slipping inside the door and starting to head down one of the corridors as quickly but as quietly as I could, shutting the door behind me with the lightest bit of force possible. I ran and ran, wanting to get as far away as I could. From the moment that I cut my comms and divisor off to Ted, that was it. If they find me now, the consequences will be a lot more severe than just a demotion or a write-up. But why send me down here? Why not, Agent Ivory? Unless it was all a setup. This is what they had wanted. They need someone to take the fall to frame me and make it look like I was attempting to throw the higher-ups who were the actual masterminds of this horror show under the bus. They had released those things on purpose, killed those workers, and probably made up the whole backstory. Now all they needed was a lower-level idiot agent to pin the blame on. Probably give some BS story about how I forged the documents as well, as a Dr. West's signature and made up the diagram. And if anyone questions it, they'll point out how I somehow knew to go down here alone. That's why Ted was sure to only talk to me about going down here. I was the scapegoat. Not to the public, no. The public will obviously never hear a word of this. But to the rest of the agency, the members who truly matter will. They couldn't possibly know that their whole purpose of killing the boogeyman and keeping normalcy afloat had been completely flipped on its head. Instead, they unleashed the very thing they worked so hard to stop. The truth is, I never wanted a promotion. I never really even cared about this organization or anyone in it anyway. The horrific nature of what goes on in here needs to be exposed and if I have to spend the rest of my life running, then so be it. It wouldn't be long before they came down to search the basement area, so for the time being, I had to find a place to hide, to pray that they would overlook it in time for me to copy down this binder and hopefully escape. I found what appeared to be a sort of diverging path away from the main corridor, so I ran a bit further ahead, rubbing my scent along the walls for the next 200 feet or so to throw off 16A, and then I doubled back around into the diverging path. There's no way I'd be able to get out of this factory the way we came. Not now, not anymore. This was all purposeful. This had all been planned and constructed meticulously. This wasn't just some random factory. And that was more than apparent to me now. And it was slowly becoming clear to me that I was trapped. But I couldn't die doing just nothing. I'll take a couple of those meatheads with me. But they'll of course use that to strengthen their argument of me being nothing more than a crazy traitor. No matter what, I was utterly screwed. There's some blank pages in the binder. I need to write everything down. I don't know how much time I have left, but it can't be much. If you're reading this, I'm probably dead. But the agency needs to be exposed for what they are. But I was a part of this horrid system too. And I take responsibility for the role that I played. 
Whether I was forced into it or not, I was too complicit. Side 12, April 7th, 2009. I looked over the transcript. I couldn't help it, but I knew the consequences of getting caught doing so. My orders were to deliver this to Ted and be done with it. But Agent Parker's story was as fascinating as it was confusing and terrifying. I know his fate. I know that he didn't get as far as he had hoped. And while I do want to keep my job here, for the most part, I couldn't help but feel guilty. Like I had a part to play in his termination. Despite lacking the ability to truly do anything to help him, especially since he had been long dead by now. As to why they had me, just a second-rank scientist in this facility doing the delivering. I mean, who knows? Perhaps they thought that I wouldn't be interested in the contents. Boy, was that a mistake on their part. I made it to Ted's office, knocking before being given verbal permission to come in by the director himself. Ah, Dr. John, right on time. Ted pronounced with an obviously fake smile standing up and retrieving the folder for me with his large, grubby hands, his index and middle finger stained with pen ink. Anything else you need me to do, or can I head back to the lab? I asked, not wanting to be there any longer than I had to. You're free to return to your work, but be careful. Not everyone in this organization is someone that you can trust. I've learned that firsthand. I didn't come up with much of a response other than a bit of nervous laughing and a head nod of agreement, which I'm sure that he saw right through. Had he seen me snooping in the folder, only God himself could help me if he did. But I wanted to get out of there before the awkward, tension-filled silence set in. So I turned around and went for the doorknob before being stopped yet again by Ted's low voice. Oh, and John... Could you keep an eye on Dr. West? She's becoming a bit obsessed with that little science project of hers. Now don't get me wrong, he's useful when he needs to be. But my god, she acts like that thing is her literal child sometimes with the way she talks about it. 16A you mean? I asked without turning around, not wanting any further eye contact to be had. Yes, now go on. I've got some important things to take care of in here. Two hundred years ago, my ancestor worked as a guard in a graveyard. This is his journal, written by With Bite. Being a body snatcher is not what it was. My family used to follow this trade into a couple of hundred years ago. There is a good living to be made from the dead. The illegally exhumed bodies of the freshly buried could be sold to be used in the teaching of anatomy. There was profit in this thriving trade. Now, all people want are body parts. Kidneys, eyes, hearts, and the like. For use in transplants. There's no demand for the whole thing. Obviously, I have no plans to become a body snatcher. I'm going to college to study graphic design. Before then, I've been going through a bunch of old boxes handed down through my family over the years. There was a journal in one which caught my attention. It was the winter of 1825 when the journal begins. 
the cold has been merciless. These last days, the freezing wind has cut through me, while I have gone about my business and left me shaking and miserable. Being at the inn was helping and I really did not want to leave. The ale was strong and the serving maid was unmarried and had a few teeth left. A night in her arms would put the fire back in my bones. But I had work to do. I sighed, down the last of my ale and left a coin on the table to settle my bill. Darkness lay like a shroud over the town as I trudged miserably away. Holes swimming with rainwater and dung waited like traps and... A half dozen times, my boots were dunked in the defeated mud. I pulled my cloak tighter about me and continued out of town. It was mercifully quiet. Only the sound of my ragged breath disturbed the peace. I lit my pipe. Apart from its weak glow, there were no lights, until I saw a lantern swinging some way off, and the silhouette revealed by it. I could not be sure if this was a friend or foe, and I clasped the handle of my knife held in my waistband beneath my cloak. As I came closer, the shadow formed a face. Mercy Smith was not a pleasant sight. A fat scar ran down one cheek. His eyebrows had been singed off when he had fallen drunkenly into a fire and had never grown back. The only other hair in his head sprouted thickly from his ears and his nostrils. Mercy was woefully misnamed. He was quick to anger and bore grudges over the pettiest of things. He stank as well, worse than anything that flowed from a horse's backside. And he was my partner. Mercy had won the wooden teeth he wore from another man in a card game, and he had had to take them out to speak, which he did to mutter, Joseph, by way of a greeting to me. In return, I'd asked, are you ready for our labors? He nodded and put his teeth back in. I told Mercy to extinguish the lamp. We did not want to be seen. He did so and without another word, we went on our way. The graveyard was seated on a steep hill. It rose up before us in the darkness and we blew out our cheeks and cussed as we scrambled up to the top. The oldest graves were the first that we left in our wake. The gravediggers and the men of the cloth had started laying the dearly departed to rest around the base of the hill. As time had passed and the earth had been too crowded to squeeze any more in, and the graves had been dug higher and higher, until now the summit was all that was left. Here were the fresh graves. Mounds of earth padded down but not settled. Headstones with their inscriptions carved a day's sentence. I took a long draw on my pipe and pointed at one. That looks newest, I said. Mercy grunted and knelt down and began to dig. He used his bare hands and looked more like a beast than the pinnacle of creation as he labored. The soil cleared and the coffin exposed. He took the metal bar that he wore around his neck as if it were a charm and began to crack open the lid. It protested but soon gave and Mercy pulled away the lid. A woman's body lay within. She looked to be around one in twenty in years and to have been buried for only a few hours. If she had been left there, her long blonde hair would have continued to grow, while her skin decayed. Her nails would have lengthened, 
While their flesh was eaten by the insects once, they had burrowed through the coffin. She'll bring a fair price, I said. Mercy lifted the body. I took the arms and together we returned her to the surface of the world. In the partnership between Mercy and myself, he was the brute labor and I the brains. And now we had the goods, I would negotiate the price. First, we needed to get her to the corpse man. He plied his trade from a mansion that he had constructed deep within the woods. The entrance to the road which led to the mansion was hidden between the densely growing trees. The man in the know, and I was such one, carried the secret of this location. With the body held in the sack thrown over his shoulder, Mercy followed me and we made our way along the road. Armed men stationed in the undergrowth watched our progress. We were known to them or else we would have been corpses ourselves long before we made it to the mansion. Night still held us in its dark embrace and no lights marked out the mansion. I knew only from experience that we were coming close. When I heard a voice call out, What do you bring? One, I replied, fresh and whole with no signs of disease. Approach, the voice told me. We stepped lively forwards until we were close enough to see the man who had spoken. The watchman's eyes were hollow sockets. He had followed our progress by the sound of the fallen leaves beneath our feet. I think only a ghost or some other being without substance could have snuck up on him. I placed a coin in his outstretched hand and he said, Enter. A heavy door stood before us. I aped it open and moved aside to let Mercy and his burden through. Lamps hung on the walls showed the way and we hurried on until the passage opened into a vast room. Dozens of corpses were laid out on tables. Their burial clothes had been removed and were neatly folded into piles placed around the floor. There was one pile for shoes, one for shirts, another for trousers, another yet for dresses. The corpse man would sell these through one of his intermediaries in inns across the county. It was all part of the process of harvesting the dead. He himself stood over one of the bodies and was noting down some detail in the ledger that he held. He did not look up when he said, Put her on that table there. Mercy laid down the body and I stepped up to the corpse man and we began our discussion. I couldn't push too hard because he held all the cards, but we agreed on three guineas. An honest man could not earn that in six months of backbreaking work. As Mercy and I were taking our leave, we saw a coach and horses pull up outside the mansion and two large boxes being carried out and placed inside it. It was two more bodies I knew, setting off on their journey to Newcastle, New York, or Edinburgh to supply an anatomist with a specimen on which the science of dissection could be taught. From his mansion, the corpse man fulfilled the needs of learned men throughout the land. Mercy and I were content to play our part and we set off to find an inn to raise a cup to our latest sale. To the maiden, I said a little while later as we sat by a roaring fire. Mercy's teeth lay on the table. He was already on his third ale and I decided to put them in my pocket. He was bizarrely fond of his wooden teeth but had a habit of losing them when he got drunk. The rest of the day passed pleasantly and we were married by the time the dusk came. Looking back, we should have found beds for the night, 
but because of our high spirits, we decided to try and add to our wealth. We did not want a chance for returning to the scene of last night's misdeeds. Our trade was not illegal. The law stated that a dead body was not owned by anyone. If we had stolen a horse or a loaf, then the law would be on us, as these things belonged to someone. But we could not be prosecuted for taking a corpse that belonged to no one in the eyes of the law. The worst that we could be tried for was the theft of the clothes that the body was buried in. However, the good people of the land looked sourly on the act of body snatching, and a number of our fellows had been set on by mobs and beaten most viciously. So we needed to be careful, and set off walking to a neighboring village where we had not been for more than half a year. It was deep into the night when we had arrived, and apart from a three-quarter moon, all was dark. It was a small gathering of dwellings. All were shuttered, and it seemed all those within were asleep. And nestled on one edge of the village stood a small church and a graveyard. At my side, Mercy grinned. I had returned his teeth to him, and we had laughed at the inn. If we find a good corpse in here, I whispered to him, I'll have a new set of teeth made for you, carved to fit and smooth to shine. He nodded enthusiastically and led the way. The graves were laid out in rows, and at the end of one, we found what we were looking for. A new headstone stood out in the moonlight. It was large and flamboyant. Whoever was buried in this grave must have been very wealthy. Hoping there would be a bonus to be made from finding a corpse draped in fine cloth, we set to work. A layer of loose soil still lay over the fresh grave. Mercy crouched down and, using his hands, began to sweep it away. It all happened so quickly then. The sound that filled the night, Mercy falling backwards at the harsh scent of gunpowder, the blood cascading from the bullet wound in Mercy's forehead. I fell to my knees, tried to stem the flow with my hands, but it was no use. Mercy's eyes stared back at me blindly. My partner was dead. I turned to look at the gun which had been hidden in the soil. A taut cord had been set to pull the trigger if the soil was disturbed. I had heard rumors of such things, of grave guns, left as traps for body snatchers by the relatives of the newly buried. I thought this was just gossip, but now I knew that they were a fact, a cold hard truth. I closed Mercy's eyelids and wept. It was almost dawn before I left the graveyard. I was in a daze and I walked for hours and I had no plan, no destination in mind. I found myself in an area that I did not recognize. The open countryside through which I had been drifting had brought me to a small town. I decided to find an inn and keep drinking until I passed out. I walked along a street lined with grand houses and at the end of the street there is a graveyard. I cursed. It was as if the world itself was taunting me. The graveyard was not like the other burial places that I had seen. They had all been open swaths of land decorated with resting places. High stone walls rose around the boundaries of this graveyard, and an intricate iron gate marked the entrance. There was a bill poster fixed to the gate. It proclaimed that this graveyard was the safest in the county and that the owner had employed the latest measures to protect all buried there from those scoundrels who steal bodies. I thought of the grave gun that had killed Mercy and almost tore the poster down, 
but I held my temper and read further down on it that guards patrolled the graveyard during the night hours. An idea flashed through my mind. Now I was on my own. I needed new ways to procure corpses to sell. And who was better placed to steal the dead than the man employed to protect the dead? Feeling a little more like my old self, I went to find the owner of the graveyard and offer my services as a sober and law-abiding citizen who would make an upstanding guard. I found the owner in the graveyard supervising the unloading of a number of wooden barrels from a cart. I mean, I assumed it was the owner, from his tall and expensive frock coat, and the confidence with which he was issuing orders to the men and doing the actual work. I was proved right. I introduced myself as Thomas Miller, a former soldier recently returned home looking for an honest wage for an honest day's work. The lies dripped from my mouth with ease. The owner looked me up and down and said gruffly, It's been hard to find men willing to spend the nights keeping watch over the grave, so you'll do, for now. I gave him a little salute and told him that I would not disappoint. The last of the barrels had now been unloaded and the laborers were putting on onlooking garments. They were made of very sturdy-looking material and were all of one piece. Oddest of all, was the helmets that the laborers helped each other fix in place. They were made of metal and spherical in shape. A piece of glass was fixed in front for the wearer to see through. The owner noticed that I had been staring at the men as they struggled into the outfits and said, These garments were designed so that a human being could submerge under the waves and not drown. I purchased them to keep these men safe here in my graveyard. As he spoke, the man began to take the lids off the barrels and, using their gloved hands, scoop up a pottery substance that I saw was held inside. They carried this over to a grave and scattered the powder over it, and then they moved on to another grave and once again covered it with the powder. I was fascinated but mystified, and my expression must have once again given me away because the owner chuckled in a self-satisfied way and continued... I'm not only using guards and grave guns when the delivery of them arrives, but I am also empowering some very special measures of my own devising. The potty you see being distributed was created for me by one of the county's most daring scientists, a truly brilliant individual who embraced my idea. The powder reacts with everything it is scattered over and transforms it into a new form of matter. The dirt of the grave, the wood of the coffin... The very flesh of the deceased all can be changed, and once they are, their touch is deadly. A body snatcher who tries to lay hands on the corpses in my care will die in agony. His chest was visibly swollen by the time he had finished speaking. I was lost for words, and at first disheartened, but by the time the oddly dressed laborer had finished scattering the powder far and wide and I had been given a lantern and a gun and told that I'd be paid in the morning. My determination had returned. The owner gave me his address, told me to report there for my coin, and then strode off, leaving me alone. I began pacing up and down the graveyard as a darkness fell. Not because I was making an effort to patrol, but because it helped me think. The powder was a problem. I did not know if it did what the owner claimed and didn't want to find out by touching anything with my bare skin. What I needed, I decided, was an outfit like the laborers had worn and a couple of sturdy men to help me. 
I decided to go around the local inns in the morning and find what I required. In the meantime, I would locate the graves that I would rob when I was ready. I would not only do this one or two times either, but as many as I could. I would strike large and then make my escape. I was smiling as I made my way in between the graves. I could make my fortune here, I thought, and retire to my own grand house. The graveyard was a lonely place but full of promise. There were at least five bodies there that I could make a handsome profit from, and hopefully even more would be buried the next day. I reached the end of a row of graves and turned to retrace my steps, but the smile fell from my face. One of the graves had been violated. Soil lay scattered around a freshly appeared hole. I hurried forwards to the edge. The coffin lid had been thrown aside and the body had been gone. But how, I thought. There had been no one else in the graveyard. No one could have taken the body. I was scratching my head with the barrel of the gun and wondering what to do. When I saw a trail of pale liquid leading away from the disturbed grave. I leant over to put my finger in it. The liquid was sticky and did not need to bring it very close to my face to recoil at the sickly sweet smell of it. It was a smell that I knew all too well. Once a body decays to the point where it breaks down and produces fluid as such as this, it is of no worth to the body snatcher as no one will want to purchase it. A bitter laugh escaped my lips. Whoever had stolen this body had wasted their time. But still, I could not let them get away with it. I needed to bring them to justice so I could keep my job for at least one more night. I set off in pursuit, letting the trail of a bodily fluid show me the way. The body snatcher must have dragged the body away, I deduced, and my reasoning seemed to confirm as the trail led me in the direction of the gate. I have you, I muttered under my breath. The owner had locked the gate when he left and I was the only other person with a set of keys. Sure enough, there was the culprit, standing with their hands on the gate, rattling it in a vain attempt to open it. I could not see the exhumed body. Perhaps they had tucked it away and out of sight, while they tried to find a way out, I thought. I strode forwards, the gun raised, ready to fire if they resisted. Now you there, thief, I called out. Surrender. The scoundrel clearly heard me because they swung around. I began to shiver, not with the cold of that winter night, but because of this sight that now stood before me. It had been a man once, but now it was a monster. Its skin had rotted away and the flesh beneath was reduced in places to gristle that hung off exposed bone. Its eyes were cavities. The fluid which I had followed glistened over every part of it, and new trails hung between its fingers and the metal where it had grasped the gate. Trails that stretched out and broke as the monster moved away from the gate and started to shuffle towards me. I was held paralyzed for a moment by fear and then managed to stumble backwards and turned, ready to flee this hideous being. Only there was no path of escape. A dozen more graves had opened and disgorged the dead souls which had been buried there. They stood, swaying slightly from side to side. Once men, once women... Some still wearing their burial garments over their bloated and darkened skin, others without any. These abominations wore no skin, no flesh, and no muscle. Time and nature had stripped them down to the bone. But how could this be? 
My mind raced to understand, and I could only see one reason. The dang powder that had been applied so liberally, it had raised the dead from their graves, and now the monsters were all descending on me. They were coming closer and closer. One that still had stuff on its face and a tongue in its mouth whispered, Poison. You poisoned us. You have destroyed our resting place. Another added. No, I said. It was not me, it was the owner. He did this. The monsters turned to each other, muttered words too quiet for me to hear, and then one of them looked at me and said, Take us to him. I did not need asking again. My hands were shaking so badly that it took me three attempts to get the keys in the lock, but eventually, I swung the gate open and then hurried towards the owner's house. Behind me, I could hear the monsters' unsteady progress in their voices. These were creatures that it seemed, that chattered ceaselessly now they had returned from the grave. The address the owner had given me was one of the grand houses that I had passed by earlier. As I reached it, I saw a light in one of the windows and moving closer, that he was still awake and sitting in an armchair. He was wearing a brightly colored silk dressing gown and smoking a cigar. He hadn't noticed me, or the monsters as they brushed past me. I moved aside, my skin crawling at their touch. They continued to the windowpane and pressed their grotesque faces against the glass and cried out, You, you destroyed our resting place. You poisoned us. Over them, I could see first the look of shock on his face, and then the horror which possessed him as the monsters began to strike the glass, harder and harder until it shattered. And then the monsters moved inside and fell on him. They clawed at his face, bit his flailing arms, and then began to tear out chunks of him. I could not watch, and I turned away. After a few moments, the head of monsters' chattering voices coming closer and looked back to see them, emerging back out onto the street. One had the silk dressing gown draped over its shoulders. Another held the cigar. It still glowed and the monster put it in its mouth and inhaled. And I watched in disgust as smoke drifted from the gaping wounds aligning its throat. I swallowed down the bile which had risen in my mouth and said, I've done what you've asked, now let me go, I've caused you no harm. Once more, the creatures conferred, their voices mingling, until one said to me, We need the earth. We need to rest, and you will help us. I had no choice, it seemed. Follow me, I said, and led them out of town and into the open countryside. I found a spot away from the track and fell onto my hands and knees and began to dig, as Mercy had once done with my hands. Desperation gave me strength that I had never possessed before and I opened up a pit and then dragged myself to my feet and stood back. It is the best that I can do, I said. The monsters shuffled forward into the grave that I had made for them. They shifted this way and that but eventually lay still and I started to cover them with soil. As I kicked the dirt over them with my boots, they continued to speak. I called only fragments. They spoke about being torn from their dreamless rest. They talk about the anger they felt, and about the feel of the night air on their bones and how it hurt. How they wanted to know nothing again, and how all they wanted was to be at peace. My labors finished and the pit fully covered, I was ready to walk away. 
I had survived, and for now, that was enough. The first traces of light were appearing in the sky, and the birds were beginning to stir. It was a dawn chorus that still haunts my dreams, one filled with birdsong and the waning chatter of the risen dead now settling back into their eternal sleep. Never Stay in Room 26 at the Pink Motel in Miami Written by Blake Blizzard I wanted or needed to stay at the Pink, Room 26 to be specific. The hotel isn't actually called the Pink. I don't know what it's really called. I never cared to. I knew where it was and how to get there. The Pink is one of those neon Art Deco hotels that grace the already beautiful Florida State Road A1A. The highway itself spans through four Florida counties. It might go through to the Keys, but I don't care to look it up. It hugs the Atlantic Ocean. It's called Collins Ave, through the stretch on South Beach, Miami. Also referred to as Beachfront Avenue by the early 90s rapper Vanilla Ice Cream. While he didn't name it that, it really is what it's called by the locals. If you've been to South Beach, then you know that it is quite an experience. Neon palm trees, beaches, beautiful people. It has a lot. Vibrant nightlife, colorful drinks, the list could go on for days. What you might not know is that there are some underappreciated haunts there. The city of Miami was once called the most dangerous place on earth. And this due mostly to the notorious cocaine cowboy era of the 80s. Any place with that much violence and death has to have some residual effect. The Miami Cemetery has multiple Casper sightings. There are many hotels with tales of spooky specters and dark shadows. Not many are specifically in South Beach though. I guess that is what intrigued me about this place. I am not a paranormal investigator. I have enjoyed the occasional scary movie. I liked hearing about urban legends and reading scary stories to tell in the dark. I never really got into it though, and didn't believe in ghosts at all. I was fine with the entertainment aspect. I only preface this to say that I'm not like a writer trying to document the occult or the spirits beyond. I don't know why I wanted to see this place. I've never stayed in a haunted hotel or hunted for shadow people. I've never ever seen one black-eyed child. The Pink is also known for an unfortunate handful of men and women that had met a gruesome demise. One man was found with his throat cut open, and his delicate parts not in the best shape. Another woman was found in the bathroom. A greeting in blood was written on the vanity for the police to find. A family of four, a husband and wife, and their twins were all found cold by housekeeping the morning that they were supposed to check out. Yeah, they checked out all right. These were all unsolved cases, and foul play was suspected in each of them. No arrests or convictions were ever made by my investigation. The hotel has a long history dating back to the 1950s, but none of these cases ever made it to any kind of national acclaim. Either the Miami Board of Tourism found a way to kick it from the news or some other force was keeping it all quiet. No one really knows. 
As for me, I wouldn't say that. I have a death wish or anything like that. I also don't have much to live for. I should be completely honest though. I'm a writer, just not dealing in the paranormal world. I've done some freelance work for magazines and newspapers when they were a thing. And I've had a short but successful career writing for some online sites. Mostly in the gossip and entertainment world. Nothing of substance. Nothing of importance. I guess you could call me one of those rag writers that throw out puff pieces and turn the rumor mill to make a dollar. I'm fine with that. Those days, however, have come to an end. Classic, penniless, depressed writer. Maybe this could be a good way to go out. One last dance. Why does this place draw me in? Imagine the iconic cover, The Exorcist, with the streetlight shining down on the priest. Well, that's me outside of the pink. But instead of ominous darkness, I'm surrounded by the neon lights of Miami and the nightlight that won't stop. I'm staring at ten stories of history. Rollerbladers are blowing by me. A guy with dirty dreads and striped socks is playing a mandolin just a few feet away from me. With his instrument case open, begging for gratuity. House music is vibrating from every direction. Much different feeling than The Exorcist. I kick the door open to the pink with fours, slamming a crispy $100 bill on the counter. Your most infamous room, miss. I yell at the clerk. The pretty lady behind the counter takes a step back, placing both hands on her chest, opening her mouth ever so slightly. Her eyes feign fear, but behind that is a burning lust. Oh, of course, sir. How many nights, mister? You can call me Mr. Goodtime, ma'am. I say as I slick my hair back with one hand, while maintaining laser-sharp focus on the pink clerk. She starts to visibly shake, backing up to where the keys are kept. Her hands have moved from her surprised mouth to the top button of her pink blouse, surrounded by her black vest. Miami, indeed. I just have the room, stranger. The key is right down here. She turns around, feigning to look for a room key at the very bottom of the shelf. She does a stiff-legged deadlift towards the ground, supposedly looking for my room key. The room key she's going to give to Mr. Goodtime. As she's presenting her skin-tight black skirt to me, she shyly looks back at me, making fiery eye contact. And then I notice her bubble bath-colored pink nail color on her toes, exposed by wearing black high heels. She noticed that I noticed. Yeah, sir. She hands me a piece of paper. Um, what is this? This isn't a room key. I say, genuinely confused. It's my room number next door. No fee. She says with a wink. Her short, brown hair compliments her world-killing hazel eyes. I think I'm gonna like my stay here. Five stars, I think. But that didn't happen. I forcefully close my eyes and give my head a little shake from left to right. Got to get back to the real present world. I'm still here standing outside of the bank. I have a beat up Under Armour backpack that I don't remember purchasing with maybe two days worth of clothes. I'm wearing black sweatpants, a gray sweatshirt, and a Central Michigan University cap. Fire up chips. I'm a long way from college. 
After a group of 20 or so bikers make their way through the light, I cautiously tread across the pedestrian crosswalk. They weren't motorcycles either. They were riding the bicycle variety, but with crazy lights and old school boomboxes somehow fabricated to the frames. I pushed the door open fully expecting to have a little bell chime above me, or at least see a bell sitting on the counter. Neither were present. What I did see was a kid that looked like she wasn't old enough to legally drive. Her face was blue, lit up by the glow of her iPhone. Black Mirror had become a sickening reality. I stood there for an uncomfortable amount of time, curious to see if she had even acknowledged me. After two minutes, I couldn't take it. Hello? I kind of yelled, but in a way that seemed like I was seeing if she was still breathing. Nothing moved except for this girl's disinterested eyes, brown and dead. Yeah, she said. Okay, so this is how it's going to go, I thought. No matter. I'm not here to vent on the lacking social skills of today's youth. I have a reservation for tonight. I'm checking out tomorrow. She asked the pertinent information, and I confirmed the pertinent information. She clearly knew her job here, that much I would give her. She turned around to retrieve the instrument to access my temporary living space. When she threw the little envelope on the desk in front of me, she must have read the confusion on my face. This is my key, I said. Oh, yeah, sorry. The Wi-Fi password is written on the back. No, that's, that's not what I... It's a key card? I expected one of those old-style motel keys. The big triangle shape with the number in the middle. Attached to an actual key. I guess I built this up in my mind. I, of course, didn't say any of this out loud. I instead just thanked her and slowly retrieved the key card from the table. I thought about asking her about the history of the hotel and making sure that I would be in. Wait, I didn't even ask what room I would be in, and she didn't even tell me what room I was going to. As I got to the golden elevator, I dropped my backpack and quickly turned around. Excuse me, miss. I wanted a particular room and I forgot to confirm that I was in. 26, she said. I know. We all know. My head physically retracted, and my brow furrowed. Before I could speak further, the elevator opened and she went back to scrolling. I grabbed my pack up and stepped into the threshold of the mechanical transport to my room. I just stood there like an idiot, frozen, not sure what my next move was. Annoyed, the front desk employee brushed a piece of hair away from her eyes, giving me the peace sign. In this instant, it literally meant the number. Press floor two, and I did. When the short elevator ride was over, I was presented with a golden sign in front of me. Rooms 210 to 220. To the left, rooms 220 to 230. I walked down the surprisingly soft carpet to my room. I felt no emotion, no dread, and no happiness. When I stood outside of the pink 26, I stood still. I'm a well-seasoned traveler, and I need some traveling aids. Back in the streets of South Beach, I can't believe that I wasn't prepared enough to grab the essentials. The Miami night seemed to turn. The party had slowed, and the feeling had darkened. People were looking at me with fear or disgust in their eyes. It was hard to discern. 
One man whispered, Don't. What? I said, sharply turning around. No one within ten feet of me. I didn't pay it too much mind. I was focused on the pink. About 36 hours later, and I was standing outside of room 26 again. I admittedly threw down a couple airplane bottles of Jim Beam on my way back to my room. I think I tried to open it with one of my rental car keys. The 2020 Mitsubishi Outlander key did not open my room. It should have, considering how much I paid to rent this thing. Giggling, crap, I might be buzzed already. I retrieved the key card that Miss Sunshine gave to me from my back pocket. Swipe, beep, green. I entered a pink 26. It's a hotel room. Two queen beds, a desk with multiple outlets, an office chair. A big windows with the blinds closed. An onyx statue of Aphrodite by the TV. A bathroom with a normal shower. Water pressure amazing, as with any hotel. I threw my white plastic thank you bag of snacks on the bed. Sour Patch Kids, Reese's, and Cool Ranch Doritos made their mark. The fruits of my conquest. I lazily tossed the two pints of black velvet whiskey in the mini-fridge and scrunched the brown bag down just enough that housed the 40 ounce of Milwaukee's Best to reveal the cap. The cap that I would twist off and take a long tug. We are here now. We are here now in the spirit world, I thought. I giggled and again took in where I was in my life. The pink. Room 26. I looked for the remote. It was a long rectangle that sat by the television itself. The TV was ancient. A zenith? Do these even exist anymore? I'm going to hang up some of my clothes, watch my face, and grab some ice for my whiskey. The zenith just seemed to push me over the edge, but in a nostalgic way. I grabbed the ugly beige ice bucket that every single hotel in the U.S. seems to carry, pressing it against the ice maker down the hall from my room. I filled my bucket up with nothing. No worry, no sound of ice being deployed. I gave the machine a couple good hits, like that would fix it. Don't. What the F? Who was that? I asked no one. The hallway lights go off and I can still see by the provided exit sign light. A series of heavy, heavy footsteps appear to approach me. Now I'm worried for the first time. I came here expecting to make this my last day or two of my life. I didn't plan for this though. I don't know who you are, but please, just leave me alone. I'm not trying to mess with anyone here. Lights up. No ice, but lights up. The hotel looked normal again. I left the beige bucket in the ice machine. Room 26 was locked and secured. The little chain lock made sure that no one, no one would disturb me. No ice, that's okay. I've had plenty of warm drinks in my life. Hot whiskey is better than no whiskey. I sat on the edge of the bed that is seen who knows what. I grabbed one of the cups wrapped in plastic. It was dirty, even with the protective barrier around it. I didn't care much at this point though. The wrapping was off and the brown liquid was in it. And it was warming my stomach in an instant. Followed up by a generous imbibing of the 40 ounce ice beer. The last Zenith television on earth came to life. It was a local channel. 
Welcome to South Beach. There is so much to enjoy here. Too much for just one day. Why don't you stick around for a while and we'll see what we have to offer. I'm Pat Patterson. The tanned, good-looking man spoke to me through the TV. From the glorious beaches to the neon glow of the nightlife reflecting off the ocean, there's a reason that no one would want to leave. You are so lucky to be here. He reminds me of a tanner, Colonel Sanders. Enjoy your drink and some fun in the sun. Titan, grab that chair that's near the window. Who knows what fun South Beach has to offer. A coldness overcomes me like a blanket of ice. I annoyingly finish the drink in front of me, tossing the bottle for another. I love the pink. I love the warm sand underneath my feet and I love the peas. I love the world that takes my life. I don't know if I've always been gone, or if I was really alive when I got here. All I do know is that you should visit. Visit the pink in book room 26. I'll make sure that you're welcomed. I took a job working at a mansion in the Olympic Mountains. Something is wrong here. Written by David Morningway. The alarm clock woke Wade up with a start. He had been deep within his own dreamland, so the noise had brought him up a bit jarringly. However, a smile quickly appeared on his face, replacing the look of shock and annoyance. Today, he started the Hawthorne job, and it would be at least seven times more lucrative than any other past job. The widower, John Hawthorne, had hastily moved from a remote location deep within the Appalachian Mountains to a new location about as far into the Olympic Mountains of Washington State as anyone could possibly go. It was rumored that he just couldn't stand living in his isolated mansion without his wife any longer. So he found a similar force about as far away as he could possibly move to build or buy a new palace in paradise. This idea had brought him to Washington State and the used mini-mansion he bought on top of a mountain, and the weathered roof in bad need of repair had brought him to Wade, or more specifically, Wade's Weatherproofing and Roofing, a business that Wade had been running with in great success for almost 12 years now. Locals knew they could hire a larger company for quicker work, but Wade offered better quality work at a slightly more reasonable price. And this fact had made his small cell phone company quite popular with the locals. For living in Washington with its notorious weather, he wanted the best possible quality of roof available. Wade had prepared everything the prior night, from setting out his tools to be easily loaded into the four-wheel drive work van, to pre-setting his coffee maker to where one simple push of a button would take care of the entire process. This made his morning routine go by much faster, and getting him on the road almost 45 minutes ahead of schedule. Wade always despised being in a rush, especially for more important matters like today. He kept going over a checklist in his mind to ensure that he didn't leave anything behind. Even though he had driven so far, he really couldn't turn around even if he wanted to. This job was a bit different than the others due to the extremely remote location of the mansion in the Olympic Forest. And yes, 
Mansion was most definitely the right word for the marvel of construction ingenuity that he would be working on. It was seven stories high on top of a mountain that he had never visited, and was unnamed so its geography couldn't even be located on any form of GPS. In other words, there was no proof that the mountain actually existed, but Wade had seen firsthand how rich people created their own laws and reality, so it didn't immediately alarm him. The location dwarfed all other mountain peaks surrounding the area, so to say that he would be working high up was one heck of an understatement. Its architecture was unorthodox as well. Most mansions were wide and extra long to give the owner an open and large area simulating their own little private world. This creation traded all its width for height, perhaps to try and achieve the best view possible. This fact also made this job by far its most dangerous and required Wade to purchase extra safety equipment from a new body harness in case he would need to hang at odd angles or god forbid fall off. He also bought a couple of special long hatchet-like tools that he could stab into the roof if he was to start sliding off of it, similar to ice picks that mountain climbers used for relatively the same reason. Even though his titanium hammer had an extended claw in it that made it a similar pick-like tool, he was forced to put it to the test on a particularly high roofing job that he did a couple years ago. He was walking down an unshingled part of the roof when he slipped on some loose nails that someone had spilled out of the tool belt. While falling down, he first attempted sinking his claw hammer into the wood with only half luck, and going in less than an inch before his body weight and momentum ripped it back out, continuing his unwilling descent. Only with God's grace, he often stays, and every ounce of adrenaline and upper body strength was he able to sink in the extended claw, the stopping his fatalistic demise of human versus gravity, with his feet just 11 inches from the roof's edge. After seeing how high up this roof was, he decided to buy the ice picks and put together some custom leather sheets to holster them, so he would be able to pull them out quickly and safely if the need arose. He also had bought a cordless nail gun, which wasn't quite as powerful as the corded ones, especially the larger old model he called Biggin, for its extreme power and the fact that it could fire off the large 3.5 inch heavy duty framing nails. Although the old model safeguard, the piece of steel that prevents the nails from firing off until firmly pressed down against the wood had broken off, he was able to successfully spot-weld it back on in working order deeming it fit for one last job before being replaced. He also thought that it was wise to bring his 12-gauge shotgun with both double-up buckshot and grizzly slugs, which looked similar to a shotgun shell with a hollowed-out mini-rocket inside. Real powerful stuff. The Olympic Forest is home to many large predators, and he was going to be as far out in the wilderness of Washington as you could get, and on top of a mountain, so it wasn't all that far-fetched to assume that he could run into trouble. After almost an hour of driving through highways that transitioned into smaller local back roads and now gravel, he was about to reach the base of the mountain. In another six minutes he had arrived, pausing at the entrance that was gated. He exited his vehicle and punched 0333 in the digital panel, which beeped three times before opening into him almost soundlessly. 
He put his van in four-wheel drive and took a sip of coffee and began his long ascension up the mountain. Wade knew from coming up to price the job almost three weeks prior and that the trip up the mountain would take the better part of an hour. So he put on a playlist of downloaded music to help ease the trip up. He would usually just rely on Spotify or Pandora to take care of his musical needs. But already he knew that such things were useless out here, where data is mostly pointless and Wi-Fi practically was non-existent. In preparation for this, he had downloaded hundreds of songs and podcasts to accompany him on the job and the Lonely Mountain. He let himself zone out on his trip upward, barely even noticing anything around him as he enjoyed some of his favorite music over the past 30 years. Wade was 47 years old, so he had quite a wide variety of music that he had enjoyed over his lifetime. With his mind half wandering through random thoughts and half on whatever music was currently playing, Wade almost missed the pair of large antlers up on the hill by his right, above the gravel road. He only caught the tip of them before the shrubbery they navigated through had given them cover. He pressed on his brakes, bringing the vehicle to a slow stop as to not skid gravel, and optimistically waited for the antlers to reach the end of the thicket, hoping to catch a glimpse of the creature. After almost a minute of waiting, he thought that it must have fled in another direction and went to put his vehicle back into Forlow from Park. When his patience was suddenly rewarded, a massive buck had now slowly exited the thick bushes and displayed itself proudly upon the hill for Wade to marvel at. It was above and beyond any buck that Wade had ever seen. Not one record-breaking photo he had seen online or on television came even remotely close. This deer was bigger than any moose he had ever seen, which was impossible, thought Wade in near shock. He hastily grabbed his phone to catch the beast on video, however. By the time he fumbled his way into his pants pocket to grab his phone, he was so excited that he didn't even execute a good grip with his left hand, and he dropped it on the floorboard before he headed halfway to the open passenger side window for a picture. Ah, crap, he muttered under his breath before frantically reaching for the phone. He reached down so quick though, that his seatbelt snagged him halfway with its safety feature, slightly knocking the wind out of him. Of course, by the time he had overcome the gauntlet of mundane obstacles in his way, the ancient buck was gone, existing only in his memory now. Sighing and letting out a few choice words, he shifted back to Forlow and continued his ascent. People just don't see things like that out their window every day, you know. Thought Wade as he sifted through his current playlist of music before deciding just to go with a random audiobook to try and focus on something else. As he arrived at the second gate at the top of the mountain, preceding the estate itself, he once again exited his vehicle to punch in a digital code for entry. The only difference being that he typed 0999 this time. After only a few dozen feet past the gate, Wade saw a man standing directly in front of the mansion's entrance, with his hands clasped behind his back in a patient yet serious manner. The man was old, but in most excellent shape. I'm not saying that he was in shape for his age, which was about 70 from his appearance. No, he was in shape for anyone's age. He was about 6 foot 2 and about 185 pounds with a short, military-style flat-top haircut that held three long lines on the right side of the haircut's fade, 
just above and behind the ear, and spanned about six inches, stopping just before it reached the very back of his head. As he approached closer to the gentleman, pulling in sideways so the driver's side door would face the man, he noticed in slight awe that the lines of the man's head were in fact scars. This would be Wade's first time actually meeting Mr. Hawthorne in person, having only communicated through phone or email before now. Even when Wade had priced the job, there wasn't a soul up here. Exhaling deeply, he put his most professional and courteous face on, and he opened the door smiling. Mr. Hawthorne, with his hand still behind his back, bore a slight smile, almost a smirk, which accompanied by the fact that he looked like his muscles were carved out of stone, gave way the impression of a great leader, like someone had made a perfect statue of an elder protagonist hero. Wade also felt a certain energy or aura as he approached the man, like he had seen and done things that Wade couldn't even imagine, and such things as roof repair were simply trivial to him. Good morning, sir. Wade cheerfully exclaimed to him, outstretching his right hand, to the man while approaching. The man's smirkish smile grew slightly wider across his face as Wade approached, giving the man a warmer and more welcoming demeanor. The man then held out his right hand as well, mirroring the gesture displayed by Wade and also making him stop approaching suddenly with a shocked look on his face, making an expression that said, What the heck am I looking at? At first glance, Wade thought he was just wearing some kind of shiny glove. However, after just a few moments of true observation, did Wade realize with no small amount of surprise, this was in fact his hand. A hand that could only be considered normal if you were a freaking Terminator. They won't bite you, Mr. Hawthorne said comically, snapping Wade out of his stupor. Sorry, sir, he said before completing the introductory gesture shaking the man's unique hand. Mr. Hawthorne very gingerly shook Wade's hand as if he were trying not to hurt him. I've never seen a prosthetic like that, sir, said Wade. It moves so fluently. I bet it must have cost a pretty penny, no doubt. Here, said the man, both changing the subject and revealing his left hand. That remained behind his back until now. His left hand was both normal and holding a key. This is for you, he said to Wade while handing it to him. This will give you access to the first floor of the house, including all of its amenities and supplies. There is plenty of food, bathrooms, drinks, and pretty much anything you could possibly need. I even left the gun safe open just in case, God forbid, you run into any trouble up here. It's not uncommon at all to see grizzlies and mountain lions this far out. On the way up the mountain, I actually saw the biggest buck that I've literally ever seen in my life, said Wade excitedly. I mean, it was unnaturally big, and not afraid of my loud vehicle in the slightest, which is odd to say the least. This statement made Mr. Hawthorne's smile return again briefly before once again changing the subject. I'll be gone for a few days, Wade. Everything you could possibly need will be on the first floor, and please help yourself to anything. I only have one condition, son. Yes, sir. Anything you want, answered Wade. Call me John. The man said, grinning at him. After a few more minutes of exchanging pleasantries, 
John clasped Wade on the shoulder with his left hand, which although normal still had an iron-like grab, and told him to make himself at home and to not work too hard. Laughing at this while walking over to his oversized Range Rover, and right before John grabbed the vehicle's door handle, he turned back to Wade with an entirely serious look on his face and said, Feels like there's a storm coming, and a dang big one of that son. You be careful and stay vigilant. Don't be shy about going inside. I think you might find some usefulness in there if such an event was to arise. John said matter-of-factly and almost hintingly, Thank you, sir. I mean John. Wade said, correcting himself. John took a step away from his vehicle's door and looked directly into Wade's eyes and said, Some storms bring more than thunder and lightning, my boy. He then glanced down at his metallic hand before turning, entering his Range Rover and departing. Wade simply smiled and waved, chalking the ominous comment up to a metaphor about how bad things can go wrong in life and he began his job. The first two days consisted of mostly moving supplies from his van to the roof and tearing out the first of the weathered shingles and plywood. White had bought an extra long extension cord for the nail gun so he could keep the air compressor on the ground. While working anywhere on the roof, he wasn't about to even consider lugging that heavy piece of machinery up these seven stories to the roof. Carrying boards and shingles up was definitely the most time-consuming part of the two days. And now, with enough building supplies in place, he could get down to the real work. It was only an hour and a half that went by until he needed a break. He had been punching in the large three and a half inch framing nails with Biggin, and the weight was making his right arm burn from overuse at this point. After setting the large nail gun down, he raised his right arm and pulled it behind his neck with his left hand, stretching out these sore and tense muscles of his neck and shoulder. Sighing, he sat down on the side of the roof facing his van and the mansion's front entrance with the intention of enjoying his lunch break with a nice view. However, he quickly realized that his lunch was still in the van, so deciding to finally take John up on his previous offer, Wade thought that he would eat his food on the mansion's first floor and check out the interior architecture. Sighting again at his own stupidity, he grabbed the ladder's edge and began to put his right foot on the first step to begin his descent down. Before a loud crack sounded from the forest directly in front of the mansion, the noise made him stop before his foot ever even touched the ladder and was quickly followed by more sounds off the same nature. The sounds, although loud, still seemed distant, so distant in fact that whatever was making the noise had to be very large, I thought Wade, and his shotgun was down in the van too. Maybe I should stay up here until the noises go away, or come close enough to be identified at least, he thought. Whatever it was, it didn't seem to be in a hurry, for the cracks and crashes throughout the immediate woods before him moved methodically and with a seeming purpose. Could people possibly make that much noise while hiking through the woods, he thought? Well, maybe, if they were clearing a trail as they walked, but this is private property, the whole thing mounted is, in fact, according to John. I mean, people get lost, Wade thought to himself. Maybe it was lost hikers or even some dang poachers, but the thought was instantly cut off. 
as a pair of massive antlers appeared briefly in the tree line before the thick summer foliage covered them back up. Wade's breath caught with excitement, making him cough just a little before exclaiming, It's him. Wade reprimanded himself for yelling out loud and grabbed the phone from his back pocket. I've got you now, my friend. He said referring to the abnormally large buck that he had glimpsed and tried recording on his way up to the mountain two days prior. I can't believe I'm getting another chance to. But his thoughts were cut off yet again when, for the briefest moment, he saw two more pairs of unnaturally large antlers, quickly following the first. Three record-breaking bucks together at once. This wasn't right. And with that realization, a floodgate of even more peculiar things opened up and burst the carefully constructed dam of reason within his mind. That's impossible. The antlers, they, they can't be. The position the antlers were in was not right. It was impossible. Wade had walked the property a few times by now and had even hiked a bit around his first day after work and had gotten a good blueprint of the property in his mind by now. That's why he was so very alarmed, for the spot was easily 15 feet high, a minimum, and they didn't move like deer, but they shifted back and forth in ways only bipedal creatures can do. What is this? As if to answer Wade's eternal question, the first pair of antlers slowly emerged from the woods, along with what they were connected to. Wade had always heard people explain in movies and books about how a cold chill would run up the person's spine or how their nerves or insides were turned to ice, freezing them in place. Contradictory to everything that he had heard, Wade felt hot, like every single nerve in his body was screaming in his brain, the way a child will scream in a tantrum until their faces go red and hot, trying to convey storing emotions that they could not understand, let alone explain. This was hot panic, thought Wade. As the chorus of his nerves hit its panicked crescendo, all the logic and reason left him, like being abandoned by your oldest and most reliable friend, and being left in the dark with the image of that face approaching, and the impossible implication of the name it ushered with it. Monster. In mid-crouching position in front of the ladder, with his phone still in his right hand, the creature seemed to be scanning the immediate area, searching hard for something apparently but it had yet to look up. The roof was so high the monster would have to look extremely far up to see him, and if he laid flat, it probably wouldn't be able to view him at all. With this thought, he broke out of the hold that the inferno of shock had placed him in and proceeded to lay flat, in order to stomach crawl to the nearest pile of shingles that he had carried up the roof prior. Thank God, I stacked them all in one carelessly tall pile, thought Wade appreciatively. Now in a covered position, he let all the questions that were trapped in his fear-locked mind out and had to try and slow them down willingly before they made any kind of sense. What is this thing? How did they get here so quick when they are obviously so far away? No creature moves that fast. Do they? Thought Wade anxiously. Did I die on this roof and those were literal demons coming to usher me to hell? He thought. No, I've lived a good and decent life, hadn't I? He started breathing in and out slowly, checking his pulse while doing so. No, I'm definitely alive. 
and I'm going to stay that way. I need to access the full situation and come up with a plan, he thought logically, realizing that his phone was still in his hand. He thought that he should attempt to record evidence of this supernatural event, since he was fortunate enough to be stuck on a relatively safe vantage point. At least he kept telling himself that he was safe, as to not send his already frayed nerves into a panic attack. Wade cautiously stuck his head out of the bottom left corner of the shingle pile which stood about four and a half feet high and about seven feet wide. Every ounce of panic returned with a vengeance upon seeing the face again. It still remained in the same position, cautiously scanning back and forth with the other pairs of antlers poised still behind him, like they were all waiting for the all-clear signal from their leader. Wade couldn't even begin to comprehend what to do. So he just stayed there on the roof's edge, in a half-standing, half-crouched position, to fully take in the creature's appearance from his shield of roof supplies. An amalgamation of bone and muscle was his first coherent thought of a description. The unnaturally sharp and curved antlers led to a forehead of Elskala, except for massive veins and faint sinew tendons that ran through the bone, making it look organic and alive more like a living exoskeleton than mere bone. The side cheeks were mostly raw exposed and overdeveloped jaw muscle, with the same organic bone-like material piercing out in high sharp ridges through the cheek muscle. The rest of the head was covered in obsidian black fur, with rips here and there, where the muscle was so prominent that it appeared to tear through the creature's skin. All this led down to a slightly elongated jaw that was wide, and ended more flatly round than actually just pointed, seeming to have both canine and feline characteristics for its mandible structure. This blended together with an unnerving yet undeniable human-like appearance that shared a similar marrow and muscle type structure as its face. Its jaw was slightly agape as it sniffed and looked around the immediate area, revealing sharp teeth that were about three times longer than the smartphone in his hand which he forgot he was even holding until now. He swiftly hit the power button on the side of the phone twice to engage the quick camera feature, and having to use both hands to control the nerves and making his hands shake, he held the phone up to his face, before his stomach dropped and heart began to pound. It was gone. He quickly lowered the phone to see how far or where they had gone, but to his complete surprise, they were all still there. The ghastly face still scanning the area with the others still in tow about 20 feet behind. Confused, Wade pulled the camera back up to his face, just to be met with the same oddity, the same absence of what he knew to be there, and saw with his naked eye. Up down, up down. They're gone, they're gone. He repeated this process like playing a demented and terrifying game of peekaboo with the creatures. His mind brought up paranormal television programs and creepy blurry internet pictures of cryptids, and how it seemed impossible to get any good footage. Maybe these creatures can't be easily viewed by secondary means, like cameras, mirrors, etc., and how such a thing could even be possible. Wade sighed. After this, the realm of what was real and possible had been greatly widened for the words natural and supernatural were slowly becoming one and the same to him. His thoughts were converted back to mindless panic when a hand with fingers over half the length of its leg 
tipped with long and slightly curved black claws, made an all-too-familiar gesture as it raised its arm up and moved it sweepingly forward, just like a military captain would silently gesture his men to advance ahead after making sure the coast was clear. Without a second of hesitation, the other two creatures followed their orders, with their heads now clearing the thick vegetation and stopping parallel with the first, and now obviously a larger creature seemingly waiting for him to take the first move and take the first move he did. Abandoning the caution it once held, the larger beast dropped to all fours and with a scream deep and roaring like a bear, and but with a loud, crazed, manic human edge on it, the creature began rampaging around the entire property, with the other two following behind. At first, Wade thought after their extensive sniffing and scanning that they had picked up his scent and were coming directly for him. But right before they reached the front of the house, the back two creatures swiftly ran around opposing sides of the mansion, while the first creature and apparent leader checked in Wade's van, ripping the back door off like a gardener pulling a particularly weak weed from the earth, using no real effort at all. After inspecting the van's contents, it stood still but vigil, checking the area while the others finished their frenzied search, coming back empty-handed. They all three stood still in the open now, and Wade could see their full and unhidden form in all its magnificent horror. They more or less all looked the same except for the leader who stood about, six feet taller than the rest and with more muscle. The others also had a dark brown fur where the leader was a vanta black void of darkness. Their torso looked extremely skinny compared to their bulky upper body, but still lean, like it was impossible for them to hold fat anywhere. In fact, their stomachs looked extremely malnourished and thin which contrasted hard against their muscles. Their arms were so unnaturally long that their claws almost raked the ground as they walked on two legs. Their hands and oh god their hands thought weighed fearfully were so extremely large and out of symmetry with the rest of the body that they could wrap around the entire torso of a bull moose and with their ridiculous strength could probably crush it in half with one hard squeeze. Mid skin was so tight in places on its shoulders, chest, back and arms that the muscle ripped through the fur and flesh. The best way that you could simply describe it was if someone took a human a demon and about a dozen forest creatures and combined them into one single abomination. All Wade could think of now was how very easily those massive claws could scale the mansion and find him, cowering behind a stack of shingles without a weapon or a hope. He grabbed at his still holstered ice picks, thinking if they could be any match at all against those wholly destructive and enormous claws. Not with that reach of theirs, he thought drearily. If only I had my gun, though. And then a small, hopeful realization came into his mind. And begin. He slowly crawled on his stomach again to reach the nail gun. And after grabbing it, he cautiously moved so the hose still connected to the air compressor and it wouldn't move too much, alerting the monsters as to his existence. Wade knew that the safety guard was barely spot-welded on. And with the right amount of applied leverage, it would snap off effectively making it a three-and-a-half-inch nail-shooting projectile weapon. Yes, he thought. This was a sound plan and it would work fine, as long as the pressure hose stayed attached to the... Oh no. He started to internally panic, 
No, no, no. Since the arrival of his unnatural and unwanted guests, the air compressor had yet to turn on, and it, like clockwork, needed to recompress the air about every half an hour, depending on how much use it was under. The creatures appeared too intelligent not to figure out what was going on if and when the compressor kicked on. His thoughts were temporarily halted as one of the creatures opened its mouth wide and spoke. Not like a person though, it merely opened its jaw and without moving its mouth an inch, a voice crept out like an ominous gust of wind, sounding both smooth and gravelly, and not at all organic or alive, like the ghost of a voice. He must have known that ring. But the beast was cut off by the loud compression of air given off by the machines, a function engaging. All three creatures instantly looked at the machine and slightly advanced upon it. After their gazes followed the cord from the machine to the roof, the leader nodded at one of the others before he began to sink his claws into the mansion's walls and start scaling upward. The monster didn't make it more than two seconds before. The walls lit up with a bright blue ruin and a massive burst of blue energy violently propelled it off the wall. Sending the beast soaring about 100 yards before, it hit the ground, barely conscious and slightly on fire with blue flame. The flames went on quickly, however, the creature took a bit longer to recover from the blast. Wade had no clue as to what could have saved him in such a manner, and looked around sporadically to see if God or angels had actually answered his prayers. If so, there was nothing here now, except for a blue glowing light issuing from the front of the house quickly fading as the seconds went by. The monster, who had made a vicious scream of pain and rage when the mansion defended itself, was now just breathing heavy, trying to gain his strength and composure back. It's protected, exclaimed the leader. How? remarked one of the other creatures. The boundary warden could not have done this so quickly, unless he had help, said the leader curiously. Yes, spoke the now-recovered creature as it rose once again on two legs like the others. I've smelled ripe human flesh since we've arrived. Indeed, said the leader. Judging by the van and equipment, I would say it's a normal human from the other side. And at this statement, the other two creatures bellowed out in a yipping scream-like manner that sounded similar to hyenas but with a demonic and slightly static-sounding undertone. Wade assumed this to be laughter and instantly knew the utterly alien and unnerving noise would haunt his nightmares for years to come. Wrong place, wrong time indeed, little rabbit, mocked the leader. As the maddening laughter increased to such a volume, the Wade could feel the noise rumbling within his chest like he was lying next to a subwoofer that was pulling noise straight from hell itself. Quickly, the leader went silent and snapped his head at one of the other creatures and then to the treetops. Nodding once, the creature swiftly started climbing the tree, and halfway up, Wade realized in a panic what was happening. It was checking the roof. At that height, his shingle pile would be next to Useless's cover, he thought while he desperately searched around for a miracle. There, Wade thought, and without the time to second-guess himself, he half-crouched, half-ran, and then crawled the last few feet, 
to the large blue tarp covering his work from potential bad weather, and he slid down underneath it, covering himself up with one quick and fluent movement. He even held his breath to keep the tarp from making even micro-movements, and stayed like that for what felt like minutes, before he was forced to start breathing, doing it slowly to still minimize any movement from the tarp. After a few minutes that felt like a few hours, he heard the creature hit the ground with a very soft thud. Had it simply jumped down, thought Wade, that tree was about 200 feet up. Search the woods, he can't be far. Wade heard the leader order, before he heard the sound of the beast run away on all fours into the night. Thank you God, Wade said mentally before beginning to breathe normal again. Darkness was starting to fall now and Wade had to face the reality that he was spending the night on this roof, trapped above hell, in the middle of nowhere on top of a mountain that wasn't even locatable by GPS. In fact, Mr. Hawthorne's assistant had to physically drive him up here due to the fact that it was also not on any maps. Wade dismissed this at first because it was such a remote location, but now he had to wonder if there was more to it. He turned his phone off to save the 81% battery that he had remaining, and got as comfortable as he could be underneath his tarp, clutching big and like a security blanket, and he let his mind wander, silently thanking the heavens that it wasn't winter. After seeing such impossibly traumatic and horrifying things, it was unthinkable to assume he was going to find any kind of sleep tonight, or at least that's what he genuinely thought. After hours of hard work and then going into a state of near shock directly after, his body had tired itself physically and mentally. Combine that with the white noise of the air compressor sounding off periodically, Wade soon found himself being lulled into unconsciousness after about three and a half hours. In his mostly unconscious state, he began hearing a humming of machinery which he assumed to be just the air compressor until the slow buildup of the humming increased enough to snap him out of his slumber. He awoke alarmed and slightly confused until all these scattered thoughts of the previous night came coherently together. At the same moment that his recollections became clearer, so did the mechanical humming sound that awoke him. He identified the sound at the exact same time he heard a lumbering footfalls enter the forest. He shimmied back over to his trusty shingle pile and witnessed the creatures retreating from the ground from a vehicle that Wade now knew from his work schedule and small talk with John to be the electrician. For a split second, Wade thought that he was saved, that they were running away and giving up and that the real world was coming to chase off the nightmare fantasy one and all would go back to normal and he could escape this mountain and return to the safe real world. No, 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 Wade said under his breath. They're not retreating. As the monsters stopped about 30 feet within the forest and crouched beside some trees, kneeling the way a spurner would position themselves before a race. No, they were ambushing him. Wade felt utterly helpless as the large work van, similar to his own, pulled into the driveway. He could see two men inside of the van. An overweight, balding white man and a youthful-looking Hispanic man with good looks and a lean build. The van had a metal wall separating the front seats from the equipment in the back, much like Wade's van, except the wall was solid, 
instead of a BNAC through a mesh grate like his own. And it apparently had a door and could be accessed from the front directly, where Wade had to exit his van and go through the back doors. Wade saw the young Latin man enter the metal door and disappear into the back, shutting the door behind him as the bald man inspected the paperwork up front. The creatures moved so quickly that they were in effect a blur, moving from being crouched in the woods to standing in front of the van. Before the noises of them violently exiting the woods even reached Wade's ears, they just moved faster than sound could travel, without even issuing a sonic boom, thought Wade hysterically. How though? Wade had seen them sprint around the property when this nightmare first began, and yes, they were unnaturally fast and frighteningly quick, but this was a whole other level of supernatural. If Wade did not hear the trees ripping and physically see them fall, succeeding the creature's advance, he might have assumed they had just teleported from the woods to the van. Before a comprehensible thought could pass through Wade's mind, the van's front windshield was shattered, along with the bald man's head. With one oversized hand, the leader reached into the van's cabin through what was left of the man's body to the other beast and without pause, it devoured the man's body in just a few wet, squelchy, and crunchy bites, yipping in its hyena-like fashion as the leader inspected the other vehicle. Apparently satisfied, the leader walked over to the other creature who had just finished off all the remaining bits of the man. He should have returned hours ago, said the leader with his tone now slightly less intense as the night before. Should I go search? No, shouted the leader, silencing the other's query. We are stronger together, and Master Elrock will arrive this nightfall. When that happens, no amount of protection, rather magic or muscle, will stand in our way. Their ghastly voices slowly faded as they began walking the woodline surrounding the property, which was basically the entire mountaintop. In another few minutes, they would be at the farthest corner of the property, Wade reached into his right pocket and brought out the keys that John had left him three days prior and stared at them intently. This is going to be the best shot at making a move that I'm going to get, thought Wade. As he crawled over to get Biggin and survey the situation from a closer vantage point, Wade caught movement out of the corner of his right eye. The other electrician, Wade, had mentally exclaimed. Due to the intense horror of everything that had just unfolded, he completely forgot about the other man. Apparently, going to fetch supplies from the back had saved his life. Fortunately, the man was smart enough to stay hidden and quiet in the back until an opportunity arose. This opportunity. Wade saw the upper half of the man's body peeking through the metal door that separated the cab from the back. The cab was completely covered in what was left of the other man, and Wade could see the shock on the young man's face as he cautiously waved his arms back and forth to get Wade's attention. Wade acknowledged him with a thumbs up and quickly started to sign his plan to the man as best as he could. Wade used his hand to make a fist next to his phone and then pulled his fist away while opening his palm, trying to convey and emulate an explosion of noise. Wade then made a gesture that looked as if he was going to throw his phone like a frisbee towards the direction of the creatures. He then pulled the keys out and pointed down to the front door of the house letting the man know that he had direct access to the mansion. 
Wade had to repeat this signing process several times until the man gave him two enthusiastic thumbs up to convey that he understood the plan. Wade held up five fingers and then pointed to his wrist to simulate a watch, and then counted his fingers out from one to five and then positioned to him, the young man and then the front door again, trying to make him understand that they both had to make a move on the count of five. Wade only had to sign this gesture twice this time, in order for the young man to copy end. After both parties were fully aware of the shared plan, Wade had steeled himself and with one deep breath in and out, he began the countdown. 1. Wade kept a steady eye on the creatures to make sure that they were still far enough away. 2. He firmly grabbed a biggin in his right hand, pulling his finger over the trigger, but not on it in the way that he had seen soldiers do in movies so they didn't accidentally commit a friendly fire or self-harm. 3. He made sure the hose connected from the air compressor to the nail gun was freed of any tangles before putting his right foot on the ladder. 4. Wade looked down at the young man and nodded, as he reciprocated the gesture to Wade in mutual understanding of what was about to happen and its possible consequences. 5. Throwing caution and coherent thought behind, Wade raced down the ladder. Thanks to nailing the ladder down, he was able to descend it much easier than normal, skipping steps and abandoning them altogether. About ten feet from the ground, he jumped. After he descended to the ground, his nail gun hitting the earth directly after his feet, he quickly held it with both hands and turned left to inspect the beast's position. They seemed to be in the process of turning around the same time that Wade did, forcing him to make direct eye contact for the first time. For an uninterrupted few seconds, Wade and the leader just stared into each other's eyes from a great distance, while Wade stared into something, for there appeared to be no eyes, just large vacant holes of Vanta Black, so ominous and deep that for a moment, he thought that he was staring into the pits of hell. In the monster's all-consuming gaze, Wade was overcome with an unparalleled dread that if he was eaten by this abomination, that his very soul would become so corrupted in the demon's gut that he would never see heaven or any afterlife that wasn't completely awful. Before Wade could drown in this overwhelming hopelessness, a hand grabbed his right shoulder. Come on, man, get the key, come on! Wade snapped out of whatever trance he was in like someone had dumped a bucket of ice water over his head. Here, Wade thrust the keys into the young man's hand. I'll cover you, open her up. Wade held up Biggin and stared inching back toe to heel again, mimicking soldiers that he had watched on television. The monstrous leader let out another loud manic roar which rattled Wade's very organs and almost blurring his vision like the creature was screaming inside of his very body and soul. He thought about how quick the monsters had ambushed the electrician, and wondered if this was all futile. The leader took off and was heading at them at about 60 miles per hour, an incredible speed but not at all impossibly fast. While the leader roared in hateful rage, the other creature yipped manically in excitement, savoring the chase to come. Waited backed up all the way to the door where the young man was still fumbling with the key. Hurry, boy! Yelled Wade while firing a barrage of three and a half inch steel framing nails, which slowed the creature down to about 35 miles per hour. But it still wasn't enough. They were only mere seconds away. 
with a clawed hand bigger than Wade's entire upper body raised for the kill. The creature closed the distance at the same time that a strong pair of hands pulled Wade inside the threshold, missing his flesh and destroying the nail gun instead of his head. The young man went to slam the front door shut but was hindered as the tips of four fingers stuck through, blocking the locking mechanism and doorknob. With no time to spare or hesitation to have, Wade unsheathed his right ice pick and with two mighty swings, three of the fingers fell to the floor as the remaining digit retreated back. Before anyone could even breathe, the young man shut the door and locked it. Upon the door's closing, about three dozen ruins lit up around the door with a blue glow. Simultaneously, the same blue glow lit up outside, followed by the familiar shrieks of agony from the monster. Protected indeed, Wade thought to himself, recalling the leader's prior statement about the mansion. Wade now understood what happened when the monster tried scaling the walls of the house the previous day. Both men lay on the floor panting before the young man spoke. What the heck? What the heck, man? What are those things? What were those lights? What's happening? What the... The young man's breasts were becoming increasingly rapid. Why? His breathing started transitioning into panic, as he breathed faster and more frantic. Slow down, said Wade calmly. You're in shock, and if you don't try and calm down, then you're going to. But it was too late. The young man who Wade could see was named Daniel from his name tag was starting to hyperventilate into a panic attack. Wade slowly helped him to his feet where he half carried, half walked him to the couch, where he insisted Daniel to lay on his side with his hands pressed between his knees and just to focus on taking in deep, slow breaths. He left Daniel to his breathing exercise and began to pilfer around the house looking for a satellite phone or anything that could be of use to them. Wade remembered Mr. Hawthorne telling him about leaving a gun safe open, and he began searching around with more enthusiasm. The mansion's first floor was one giant, wide-open space, like a loft, but much larger and extremely high class. It was adorned with expensive statue-like art, most of which depicted angels fighting demons, with the latter being defeated in a very elaborate and dramatic way. The room's centerpiece looked like it would be more in place in a Roman cathedral, in some random mansion on top of a mountain. It showed four angels much larger than any of the rest in the mansion, with the earth in the middle, like a detailed statue of a globe. Each angel stood on a specific axis of a compass, like north, south, east, and west. Next to each, a directional point was a name. They read Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Juriel. Wayne recognized Michael and Gabriel as archangels from the Bible, but had never heard the latter two names. They must be archangels as well, he thought. Upon closer inspection, he also noticed an element under each name as well. Air, fire, water, and earth. This brought Wade to an epiphany. Well, no longer Michael had a flaming sword. And sure enough, under the name Michael was the element of fire. There were only six rooms in the open first floor a bedroom where Wade found a 9mm Beretta and a few clips, a locked door, three bathrooms, and a door that Wade had yet to check. Besides a little coughing, Daniel had not yet made a sound, so Wade decided to check up on him. He was sitting up now, seemingly more relaxed and holding something in his right hand. 
Before he reached Daniel, he saw him put whatever was in his hand to his mouth as a green light lit up, followed by the sounds of deep inhalation. Well, that explains the coughing, said Wade, smiling. Feeling any better? He asked. Exhaling, Daniel tried handing Wade the vape. Pure indica, he said, noticeably calmer. Uh, maybe later, Wade answered truthfully. How are you not freaking out right now? Asked Daniel. Oh, I already had a few panic attacks up on the roof, said Wade. Wait, Daniel stated. How long have you been up there? Well, almost 24 hours, replied Wade. Dang, responded Daniel, in a shocked yet sympathetic tone. There's supposed to be a gun safe that the owner left open. Is that where you got that? Said Daniel, pointing at the 9mm tucked under Wade's belt. Oh, no, replied Wade. Found this in the bedroom. Well, no crap, exclaimed Daniel excitedly. I'm gonna check it out. I think this was what it was about, but knock yourself out. It's the room on the back right. As Daniel made his way to search the bedroom more thoroughly, Wade ventured to the last room on the first floor, hoping that it would not be locked. For the first locked room was a steel-looking mechanism on a steel frame. Or more simply put, it was kickproof and adorned with high-tech security locks. As Wade made his way to the last door, he began noticing a familiar sight next to the right side of the door. A save. He picked up his pace as he closed in on it, noticing a small gap where the door had been left open by John. The safe was about seven feet tall, giving Wade hope that this indeed was the gun safe due to its size. Yes, hissed Wade in confident excitement, for after opening the safe door the rest of the way, his eyes laid upon a beautiful sight. There were nine in total. Two rifles, two shotguns, three assault rifles, and another 9mm Beretta, and one really intriguing Magnum, a 44 Colt Python with shiny silver metal plating, and a black ergonomical grab. Along with the weapons was about two or three dozen boxes of various ammunition. Wade pulled the Beretta from his waist and replaced it with the Colt Python. Before he yelled for Danger to come join him in arming himself, he thought it wise to inspect the remaining room beforehand. As he reached for the door handle, something happened that startled him and made him retreat a few steps back. Wade removed the magnum and readied it, pointing it at the door while silently praising himself for already loading it. For when he previously reached for the door handle, it had opened itself. Standing back and peering into the small gap left when the door opened, he stood, gun raised and waited for anything. For in this new and frightening world that previously only existed in his worst nightmares, anything was now possible. However, what came out of the door was not at all what Wade had expected. In fact, it wasn't even a physical being at all. Wade, Wade, can you hear me? Said a voice that crept its way through the gap in the door. A voice that he faintly recognized. John? Wade finally stammered out. Ah, uh, yes, my boy, yes, come in. Both of you, please come inside, for there is much we have to discuss. Wade inched his way into the room, gun raised. He only made it about two steps in the brightly lit room before lowering his gun, and his jaw along with it. Oh my god, said Wade in complete awe and surprise. That's right, my boy, 
If we are to survive this night, then God is, as always, our greatest ally, said John's face, which was being displayed through what looked like a 200-inch flat screen on the far wall, up high and directly in front of him, about 100 feet away. The room was unnaturally bright and white, much like super high-tech labs you see in science fiction movies. It spread about 100 feet long and about 70 feet wide, with a long, rectangular, mostly transparent table that spanned the length of the room. On the left side of the room's walls were composed of monitors, computers, and one long desk built on the wall below it all, seemingly being some sort of security monitoring station. All of Wade's attention was pulled toward the right wall, though. That was nothing short of an armory. He glimpsed at every gun imaginable, from AKs to freaking rocket launchers. That was just the recognizable weapons, too. About 40% of the arsenal's contents were made up of items and weapons that Wade had never even seen before, or never even knew to be real at all. There were guns that looked purely of alien design, staffs with glowing orbs adorned on top of them, swords, spears, and axes with glowing ruins engraved in them. The Bore's similarity to the protection ruins he saw upon the door being shut and activating the mansion's defense. Wade even saw spherical glass-like containers that were filled with water and wrapped in silver bands covered in elaborate crucifixes, which he assumed to be holy water. John watched Wade patiently from the monitor, smiling his smile as Wade took it all in. Hey, you found it! A voice loudly exclaimed from outside the door, as he heard Daniel sorting through the various guns within the normal gun safe just around the corner from the open door. I don't know what you're doing in there, but what could possibly be more important than gun- Daniel's voice paused abruptly upon entering the room. Guns. Slowly finishing his initial statement a few seconds later, while taking in the impossible sight. Wade, Daniel. John's voice sounded through these speakers that circled the entirety of the room's upper walls. Now that you both are here, we have much to discuss, my friends. How do you know my name? asked Daniel. Your name tag, son, replied John at the same time that Wade pointed to the identification badge on the upper right portion of the young man's company shirt. Oh, right, replied Daniel nervously. Ma will be explained well as much as you need to know at least, John said, correcting himself. You boys grab a seat and get comfortable. This won't be a short story and we only have until nightfall to prepare for the storm of hell that blows this way. Something tells me that when you say hell, you're not talking about frozen balls of ice, said Wade, as he sensed a change in John's demeanor. Noticeable even through the screen, his face was projected on. The kind of change that comes over a person when they're about to be 100% serious with you and cast all BS aside. Have a seat and let's get started, said John as more of an order this time than a request. The two men took their seats and waited patiently for John to begin. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.